Welcome, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. It's the Memorial Day show for the 30th of May, 2022. Uh, I put 31st because for some reason my computer was telling me that it's tomorrow. So on that note, uh, I keep I keep listening to this amazing, relaxing music, and I'm like sharing it with you guys constantly. Um and the reason is, is because strength comes from some sense of peace, uh, where we're at peace with what we see and what we hear, uh, because we know we cannot control it. And so, uh, you know, there are so many things that are going on in this world that we have no control over. So what I thought, aside from... Uh, wishing that all of you today... Um, are honoring those that have fallen because in their hearts, what they knew they were doing was defending the people of their own country, their children and their families. And they shed their blood for it. So I uploaded a video on rumble and YouTube that I kind of put together uh, for a master sergeant um, Pruitt. And just to kind of say thank you to all those that have passed away in the name of freedom and liberty. Therefore, that's why today I thought it would be a perfect day uh, to kind of run through history, kind of like a very quick run through from 1919 to today. And to maybe uh, kind of have this as a first uh, primer to understand and see the dynamics because if you understand the dynamics, then you're going to understand where this is all going to go, considering that the people also partake in this. So one thing I noticed, though, when I was kind of just fi finding, trying to find some videos uh, to put together, uh, you know, as I was searching through, I thought to myself, I, I, I think it would be kind of weird not to a little bit of focus on Stalin. And the reason I say this is because uh, as I was looking for some very specific videos, um, Stalin, what he did post World War II is exactly what we are going through as well. I cannot stress enough that if we were to put all everything that we're about to see about Joseph Stalin, Joseph Biden, uh, you know, w once, once you see it, I don't think you can unsee it, but just think of it in terms of now rather than then. And I believe that will, uh, speak to most of you. Leader of the Soviet Union. Joseph Stalin was born on December 18, 1878 in Gori, Georgia, in the Russian Empire to a poor family. At age seven, he caught smallpox, leaving him with a pockmarked face. Joseph's mother was a devout Russian Orthodox Christian and wanted him to become a priest. In 1895, she sent him to study in Tiflis, the Georgian capital. However, he started reading the writings of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin after joining a secret organization which wanted Georgian independence from Russia. In 1901, he joined the Social Democratic Labor Party and organized protests and strikes for the revolutionary movement against Tsarism. A year later, he was arrested for coordinating a strike and sent to prison. 
Stalin would join the Bolshevik party and use guerrilla warfare during the Russian Revolution of 1905. He impressed the party's leader Vladimir Lenin in his ability to organize meetings and strikes, as well as his ruthless techniques to raise money for the party by kidnapping and robbery. In 1907, he sold 250,000 rubles in a bank robbery in Tiflis to fund the cause. Around this time, he adopted the name Stalin, which means steel in Russian, or man of steel. During the Russian Revolution in 1917, Stalin ran the Bolshevik newspaper Pravda. By October, the revolution was over, and the Bolsheviks were in control. A civil war then followed with a Bolshevik victory. In 1922, Stalin was appointed General Secretary of the Communist Party, and he manipulated his role so that he was in a powerful position. Lenin died in 1924, and it was assumed that Leon Trotsky would be the next leader, but Stalin would make sure this wouldn't happen. He had Trotsky and other threats to his future leadership removed from the Central Committee and exiled. Eventually, Stalin was effectively dictator of the Soviet Union. In the late 1920s, Stalin would aim to turn the Soviet Union into a modernized, industrialized country, and he wanted it done rapidly. He developed three five-year plans between 1928 and 1938. Coal, oil, steel, and electricity production massively increased, but workers who failed to achieve their ambitious targets for production were executed or sent to the gulags. He also introduced collectivization to increase food production, seizing land originally given to the peasants and reorganizing it into collective farms. Mass famine was caused as a result and millions died. But Stalin saw this as a necessary evil to achieve the ambitions of his five-year plans and transform the Soviet Union. As Stalin created a cult of personality through culture, he became more paranoid. Everyone had to praise him, and his portrait was everywhere from schools to factories. In 1934, Stalin had party member Sergei Kirov killed because of the threat to his power. Throughout the 30s, Stalin purged Communist Party members, and 81 of the 103 generals and admirals were executed in the Red Army. 20 million citizens in the Soviet Union were sent to the gulags, or executed. In 1939, Stalin made a deal with Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. When Germany invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, the Red Army was not prepared and suffered massive losses, and it had not helped that Stalin had purged many talented officers during the 30s. Stalin refused to leave Moscow as the German forces moved further east. In 1942, the Red Army at Stalingrad were told not to give the city to German forces and to defend it at all costs as the city bore Stalin's name. This was the turning point in pushing the Nazis back, and soon the Red Army was liberating Eastern Europe all the way to Berlin. The Yalta and Potsdam conferences in 1945 between the Soviet Union, USA, and Britain was tense. With the use of the atom bomb, the Allies did not need the help of the Soviet Union in defeating Japan. Stalin felt betrayed, and with the rivalry between the ideologies of capitalism and communism reignited, he grew more suspicious and paranoid of the West. The Cold War had begun. East Berlin and Eastern Europe, which were occupied territories by the Soviet forces, were transformed into satellite states, forming a bulwark between the Soviet Union and Stalin's former allies. As his health deteriorated in the early 1950s, and after an attempted assassination, Stalin's paranoia increased even to the doctors looking after him, which he had tortured to confessions of poisoning. He also ordered the head of the secret police, Lavrenti Beria, to investigate a new purge of the Communist Party 
panicking members of the Politburo into wondering if they would be executed. Before this could happen, Stalin died of a stroke on March 5, 1953. At his funeral, huge crowds gathered to pay their respects, and 500 people were crushed as a result of people surging forward. After a power struggle over who would be the next leader of the Soviet Union from the inner circle, Nikita Khrushchev succeeded Stalin. While he was a Stalinist, he would denounce the dictator and reform Stalin's policies of terror and fear during a de-Stalinization process. Subscribe for more history videos. Get huh. Simple History, The Cold War, out today. It is. Uh, sorry, you. guys. I was trying to set this up properly. So as you see, Stalin uh, kind of got paranoid, and they tell you that after 1941, he went all berserk. That's a lie. That's a big lie. You're about to see it. So now that you just kind of got a crash course on Stalin, I want us to move into agreements and treaties. And I want us to see them objectively, as they are individually. And as you see it objectively, and as you do individually, um, you will start to understand where I'm going with this. So this is one of the first treaties ever signed, Armistice, in 1918. November 11th, 1918. In autumn 1918, after four years of devastating war, Germany was on the verge of economic and social collapse. With the spring offensive ending in failure, all hopes were gone that Germany could win the war. In late September 1918, the French, American, and British troops started the offensive on the entire Western Front, putting great pressure on the exhausted German forces. General Ludendorff resigned and was replaced by Wilhelm Gruner. The whole army was severely lacking morale. By the beginning of November, all of its allies, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria, had been defeated, so Germany was left fighting alone. Germany was also caught by winds of political change. Soldiers began to revolt, and protests and revolutions erupted in the big German cities. The imperial government was replaced by a democratic one, while Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated and went into exile to the Netherlands. Facing a total chaos in the country and a complete breakdown on the front lines, the Germans were desperate to sign a truce. Germany did try to negotiate peace conditions with U.S. President Woodrow Wilson earlier in October, but were reluctant to make the great concessions that the other allies demanded. This time, the Republican government was ready to accept any conditions asked by the allies. The meeting was arranged to be held far away from the eyes of the public, in the forest of Compiègne, 40 miles or 65 kilometers north of Paris. Negotiations were led by German State Secretary Matthias Erzberger and Marshal Foch, who was delegated by the Allies to sign the truce. For the occasion, Marshal Foch's train carriage was brought in as a place of formal signing of the armistice. The Allies, there was no room for any kind of negotiations. Instead, they just handed over to Germany their terms of unconditional surrender. The German delegation could only object on the number of submarines that were to be handed over to the Allies, but they were asked to hand over more than they actually had. The armistice was to cease all hostilities on the land, air, and sea. The German army was asked to leave the occupied territories of France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and Alsace-Lorraine in 15 days, as well as to repatriate all the inhabitants of the same territories and allied prisoners of war. The Germans also had to evacuate its troops from the left bank of the Rhine River and to establish a demilitarized 6-mile or 10-kilometer-wide buffer zone on the right bank of the river. The left bank of the Rhine, the Rhineland, would be occupied by French, British, Belgian, and American troops. 
The Germans were obliged to leave the infrastructure of this territory intact with all its industrial stores of coal and other materials. The Germans also had to surrender 2,500 heavy guns, 2,500 field guns, 25,000 machine guns, 3,000 trench mortars, and 1,700 fighter and bomber airplanes. They also had to give away 5,000 locomotives with 150,000 wagons and 5,000 lorries. All of these had to be in good, usable condition. All of these requirements were made to prevent any German attempt to continue the war. In order to secure the safety of the sea routes, the Allies required Germany to surrender all of their submarines, to completely disarm their six battle cruisers, ten battleships, eight light cruisers, and fifty modern destroyers, and to intern them into neutral ports under Allied surveillance. All other vessels were allowed to stay in German ports, but also had to be disarmed and put under Allied surveillance. Finally, on November 11th, at 5 a.m. French time, the armistice was signed by Marshal Ferdinand Foch and First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Rosalind Weems on behalf of the Allies, and Secretary of State Matthias Erzberger, Count Alfred von Obendorf of the Foreign Ministry, General Detlef von Winterfeld, and Admiral Ernst Wanzelau on the German side. The armistice came into effect six hours later at 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. Even at the time when the peace was so close, soldiers were still dying. Almost 3,000 men died on the last day of the war. The last British soldier to be killed on the front was George Edward Ellison from the 5th Royal Irish Lancers. He lost his life while he was on scouting duty near Mons, Belgium. Just 15 minutes before the war was ended, the last French soldier to die on the front, Augustin Trebuchon, was killed. He was shot as he was running to inform his comrades that hot soup was on the menu to celebrate the ceasefire. Canadian George Lawrence Price was killed two minutes before 11 a.m., being the last Commonwealth soldier killed in the war. A minute after, just seconds away from the armistice, an American soldier of German origin, Henry Gunther, charged at stunned German soldiers who were aware that peace was just seconds away. Gunther ended up being the last American soldier to die in the war. The last German casualty is harder to determine as records are less clear. Some records say that it was 18-year-old German soldier Alphonse Baula. He was killed only moments after hostilities ceased. He joined the army in August 1914 at the very beginning of the war. Many soldiers were in disbelief when they heard of the armistice as ammunition and supplies were still arriving to front lines. However, when the news was confirmed, soldiers across the entire Western Front started to celebrate the fact that they were finally going home to their loved ones. The duration of the armistice was to be 36 days, but was prolonged on three occasions until peace was finally ratified on January 10, 1920, putting an end to the First World War. Watch our other videos to learn more. Well, what Get if your I, copy of what, Simple oh, History. What if I told you that that's not true? What if I told you that the only reason there was a ceasefire was for all of them to be able to have time to negotiate? Negotiate what? Well, wait a minute. Why were the Germans the only ones that they were talking about in history? Going all commando and wanting to attack and expand with no Hitler. Are you saying that the Germans just wanted to take over the world just like that? By themselves with no Hitler? Oh, no, no, no. See, this is where the plan began to unfold, right? And this is where it began to unfold. So the whole thing was that there were people, Germans, Polish, even the Russians, even though they were, oh, wait, 
even weirder, friends with the Americans and the Brits. The thing is, the German royalty was not involved in any conversations that the crowns had. They were always excluded. And so the weird thing is, is you watch these treaties unfold, right? You'll start to see the big picture. So I hope I did some justice in teeing this up timeline wise. So in 19, um, 1919, all right, we had the treaty of our, the Armistice Treaty signed, right? In 1918, sorry, November 11th, 1918. Well, almost half a year later, you know, the war was declared over. Well, World War, World war One was. All this stuff that you're saying they forfeited this and that. It's all BS. It's just color. And you'll see why. Because this treaty explains more. So, huh, I think you guys are going to like this. You're going to get where I'm going with this. Because uh, you're going to start to see it once you see the meetings that come after these. And if the question of who are the big three is answered. The Treaty of Versailles. 1919. World War I officially came to an end with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, 1919. Thirty-two countries had come together in Paris in January 1919 to hold a conference which would make peace after the First World War. It would be dominated by the Big Three, David Lloyd George representing Britain, George Clemenceau representing France, and Woodrow Wilson, representing the USA. Germany was not invited. The Big Three wanted different things for Germany and disagreed on how harshly they were to be punished, reflecting how their countries were treated in the war. They had to negotiate with each other until there was a compromise. This was difficult because Wilson was opposed to harsh punishment for Germany. The USA had not been involved in the war as long as Britain and France and had not received as much damage. He wanted to prevent another world war by creating the League of Nations based on his 14 points, to ensure Germany would not be destroyed and that Germany shouldn't be blamed for the war. Clemenceau's aims were the harshest of the three representing the damage Germany had done to France's land and people and its threatening proximity. He wanted revenge and to punish Germany, to return Alsace-Lorraine to France, an independent Rhineland, no League of Nations, Germany to pay huge reparations for the damage and losses caused, the disbandment of the German army so that Germany would never be strong enough to attack France again. Lloyd George was an in-between. This reflected Britain, which had little land damage, but high war losses. He wanted a punishment that would be tough enough to please those who wanted to make Germany pay, but would leave Germany strong enough to still trade, land for Britain's empire, to safeguard Britain's naval supremacy. When the Treaty of Versailles was ready, Germany was shown the document, but there was no negotiation. Their rebuttal ignored. On 28 June 1919, the delegates met at the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles near Paris and forced two German representatives to sign it. See Part 2 to learn what the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were and the devastating effects it would have for the future of so, Germany. So, in other words, Watch our other 
In other words, they bullied them into signing a document. Two representatives of the Germans were supposed to sign this no matter what. Did they hold them at gunpoint? Kind of sounds like that shit they did with Greece where they had their prime minister in a hot box for 22 hours and people were sleeping outside. And then he came out and decided, yeah, sure, you know, I'll sign it. Greece will stay on. Done. Kind of sounds exactly the same. So here's part two. So weird, right? Forcing him to sign it and stuff. The Treaty of Versailles, 19... Here are some of the military terms. The German... The Treaty of Versailles, 1919. The terms of the Treaty of Versailles can be divided into three groups. Territorial, military, and financial and economic. Here are some of the territorial terms. Alsace-Lorraine was returned to France. Germany was forbidden to unite with Austria. Lands in East Germany, including the farmlands of Posen and the Polish corridor between East Germany and East Prussia, were given to Poland. The Saar, which had rich coal fields, were given to France for 15 years. All Germany's colonies were taken and given to France and Britain as mandates. Here are some of the military terms. The German army was restricted to only 100,000 men. The navy could now only have six battleships and no submarines, and there was to be no air force allowed. The Rhineland was demilitarized. This meant the German army could not go to this area between France and Germany. For the financial and economic terms, Germany would have to pay reparations, which would eventually be set at an enormous 132 billion gold marks. On top of this, Germany was not allowed to join the League of Nations, and it had to accept responsibility for causing all the damage and loss by the war. Overall, the Treaty of Versailles was unpopular with Germany and its creators. Its terms would go on to be reversed by Germany in both secret and in the open by Hitler and help cause World War II. Watch our other videos to learn more. Get your copy well of then, Sim Well then, well then, well then. See, that was kind of like skimming off the top, right? See, when you call a ceasefire... When you're, you'd never call a ceasefire when you're in an advantage. It's just when you want to change strategy. So the discussions that ensued were, well, so many people want to do this. I mean, we're not supposed to have slaves. We need to progress. We need to install a monetary system. We in our nation have uh, already begun to deploy this monetary system. We all need, instead of having slaves... We create a monetary system that maintains them attached to us and that they need us because we print and we take off the top and we work together and we have what we have. Strong remains strong. Now, keep in mind, this is World War I, right at the Treaty of Versailles, where France was then dropped for Russia. Oh, What? The big three, G3, get it? G4, G7, G20 some, summit. It's like the, the G's with the, with, the, with the Pepa Dalla Dalla all go there. The ones that have armies go there. Well, let's look at my favorite history teacher that breaks down just a little bit more because the Treaty of Versailles says everything you need to know taking it from here on. So we had the armistice that came right before this. 
which is weird because the Societe de Unité, the United Nations, has Germany in it. So it's really weird. Just listen. Hey guys, welcome to Hip Hughes History. There's not too many things that historians tend to agree upon, but there might be one that the Treaty of Versailles sucked. So in this lecture, we're going to frame it out, we're going to chop it up, and we're going to serve it up on a battle argument. So let's go get her done right now. So let's start with the big idea first. The big idea is that the Treaty of Versailles, which is the treaty with Germany at the end of World War I at the Paris Peace Conference, is going to severely punish Germany. Bang! Like, after they lost, they're going to lose big time. We're going to punch them in the face like a thousand times. First, they're going to take guilt. We're going to take their land away. We're going to make them pay. We're going to make their army like this big. And really, we're going to, in a sense, punish them so harshly that Adolf Hitler is going to be able to use that energy and that sense of German nationalism and pride to really use that to, uh, you know, rise himself to power and really start World War II. So a lot of historians would point to the fact that the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the war with Germany at the end of World War I, is really one of the direct causes for World War II. So now that you can hang your hat on a big idea, let's backdrop a little bit and then take a look at the treaty. Of course, you know Armistice Day. All school children know Armistice Day. And of course, Armistice Day is the beginning of the peace at the end of World War I. At least the fighting stops. That's November 11th, 1918. The Treaty of Versailles, which is specifically with the Allied powers in Germany, isn't going to go into effect until June 1919. That's more than six months after the fighting stopped. So it's a, a rather lengthy conference um, to nail down these points of peace, I guess that's what you would say. And it's actually five years to the day that Archduke Ferdinand was shot, which started World War I. So five, cinco, boom, five years after World War I starts, it's kind of officially over, at least with Germany, with the Treaty of Versailles. So it's going to be the big three that are really going to dictate the terms of this treaty. Russia signed a treaty with Germany in 1918, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which really gave lots of land to Germany. About one third of Russia was given over about three-fourths of their factories and their railroads. About 20 million people ended up in German hands. So the Russians aren't really part of this process anymore. And Germany is certainly not going to be let into the door. And them not being part of this process is going to be part of the anger that they feel. You know, they might primarily be responsible for World War I, but were there some other actors as well? Austria had a big part of this. Russia had a humongous part of this. And France certainly was ready to be mobilized for war in order to to uh, garner some of the land they lost in the 19th century. So there's a lot of blame to go around, but Germany, they're not going to be let into negotiations. The big three, of course, are going to be Woodrow Wilson with his 14 points coming across the Atlantic Ocean. Why did I do a British accent? From the United States, we have George Clemento from France, and he's probably the angriest of the bunch. You have to remember that France shares a border with Germany. Most of the Western Front is fought in France. They lost like one-fifth of their adult male population. They're really angered. They don't want to be invaded anymore. And you have David Lloyd George from the UK, the Prime Minister, and he's really looking for more of a, a safe peace. They have a huge economic investment in Germany as a trading partner. He wants things to kind of go back to the way they were, but at the same time, you know, we don't want 
want this to happen again. And then you have the big bubble boy living in the bubble of idealism, Woodrow Wilson coming from the United States, the Democratic president with his 14 points. And it's just a real partisan effort on uh, Woodrow Wilson's part. There are no Republicans in his posse that go over to the Paris Peace Conference. And that's going to probably be one of his problems down the road when he needs Republican support from Henry Cabot Lodge in the Senate in order to get the Treaty of Versailles ratified in the United States. But you can see that these three guys have different objectives going in, but they're in control of this ballgame and they're going to dictate the terms. There was a time really where uh, the Germans were thinking about, you know, nixing this treaty, not signing it and seeing if they could fight off a land invasion. But at the end of the day, they're just too weak and they're going to be forced to have to sign it. And of course, like we said before, that German anger is going to result in one Adolf Hitler. I would put a side note because there are some historians that point out with the rise of fascism and Mussolini in Italy, who was part of, you know, our allied powers in World War One, and they still had a problem with fascism and Mussolini. But at the end of the day, the treaty is still really, really harsh. So let's take a look at some of the different terms of the treaty, and then we'll see if we can wrap this up. We'll wrap it up. Article 231. Write that down. If you're doing an essay, you got to put Article 231 because that's the guilt clause. That's the part of the Treaty of Versailles with Germany that says you're bad. You're the one who did it. You're the one who started it. It's all your darn fault. And that war guilt is really going to be a slight at a sense of German nationalism, which is really strong. They're really going to be angry about this. And again, we're going to keep saying it. Adolf Hitler, he's going to be the one that's going to be able to tap into that energy of the German people to bring himself to power in the next Number two on the list is loss of territory. Uh, they already are going to lose all that territory that they had gained with the treaty with Russia. That's going to be really going to be you know, going to Poland. But they're also going to lose about 25,000 square miles, the majority of that being ceded to Poland and some of that going to France. And we're going to talk about the demilitarization zone that goes on in the Rhineland. But France, they wanted either their borders to go all the way to the Rhine or they at least wanted a new buffer state between them and Germany. But they are going to get demilitarization of the Rhine land, something like 30 or 40 miles east into Germany. And they're also going to acquire some, some mineral-rich land in western Germany that's going to be ceded to France. The League of Nations colonial mandates. We'll talk about the League of Nations in a few minutes here, but there are going to be colonial mandates which are going to force Germany to basically give up their sovereignty over these colonies that they have around the world. They have colonies in Africa. They have colonies in the West Indies. They have colonies all over the place. So they're going to be split up. And guess who's going to get them? The majority is going to go to France. It's going to go to Belgium. It's going to go to Japan, who was another ally there. So they're basically going to take some of the prized possessions of Germany away. And again, the Germans are like, Oh, we're really angry. And AF Hitler's going to be like, yeah, follow me. So military restrictions is a huge deal. We're going to make their army so small. You're going to have to do this. Just look at it. It's going to be so tiny. They actually capped the army at 100,000 men. The Navy severely limited. No more submarines. No Air Force. No planes. No arms trading. No conscription. And we're also going to basically create a buffer about 30, 40 miles east of the Rhineland where we're going to actually occupy that part of Germany for about 15 years to make sure that they're going to pay the reparations, which we're going to talk about in a second. And they're going to keep this demilitarization thing going. But again, 
again, the German sense of nationalism, that love of their militarism. Remember, like, you know, Bismarck and like, all this kind of jazz. You know, Hitler's going to tap into that energy. Every time I say Hitler, drink, unless you're a kid, then you got to have like a milkshake or something. I'm going to say it a lot. War reparations. We've probably all seen these kind of films of little kids with wheelbarrows filled with money going to buy bread because of the war reparations that were put on the back of the German people. In today's dollars, it's about a half a trillion dollars, about $500 billion. The Germans actually only paid back about $50 billion of that. And a lot of that was through the printing of money, which created that hyper superinflation um, that made bread worth a wheelbarrow of money. But they did take about $20 billion in real money, like gold and assets right away in order to pay for that occupation in the demilitarized zone in the Rhineland and to pay back some of the costs that the allied powers had spent fighting this war with Germany. But again, you know, that economic depression that occurs and the blame that goes on, we haven't talked about the blame that Adolf Hitler is specifically going to put on the Jews that live in Germany, but that's definitely going to happen in relation to them not winning World War I. The strikes that went on were blamed on the Jews and uh, the economy was blamed on the Jews as well. And again, you know how that works. Hitler's going to use that. He's going to rise to power. He's going to go to World War II. I'm done saying it. So the last thing that we'll talk about is actually part one of the Treaty of Versailles. It was part of all of the treaties signed at the end of World War I, which is the creation of the League of Nations. And it's quite ironic because Woodrow Wilson, who invented the idea of the League of Nations, uh, you know, kind of, United Nations body that would solve world problems to avoid going into something like World War One again is going to be really the linchpin that is going to get the Germans to sign that treaty. The Germans had signed the armistice on the concept of the 14 points that this would be a peaceful peace, that they'd be able to regain some type of autonomy and power in their country. And of course, we've talked about all these ways that we're socking it to them, we're punching them in the face. So the Treaty of Versailles is like the one piece of hope right? The Germans will belong to this, that they'll be able to regain their, their sense of dignity, honor, nationalism, and the, you know, League of Nations will be this fair entity that will be able to, you know, take care of Germany and the rest of the world as well. And of course, that's not going to happen when Woodrow Wilson brings that Treaty of Versailles back to the United States Senate. You remember American politics, he needs two thirds of a majority of the Senate to ratify that treaty. And it was a partisan effort. There were no Republicans. Wait a minute. Can you see the cartoon from back in the day, what it says for those watching, for those not watching, I'll show you. It shows Woodrow Wilson staying there, standing there saying, if any man can show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak. And out comes the U.S. Senate in their hands, constitutional rights. See, if people understood what that treaty was, it's very similar to what you're seeing now about the who. Therefore, when I say this has already been done, and we're talking 1919, right? It was already done. And so the Senate came in with the Constitution saying, you know, you're not going to get this ratified if we don't say so, yada, 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 yada. Because constitutional rights. The same argument some Republicans had when Obama attempted to pass Obamacare. They were like, this is an infringement on constitutional rights. Just sign it, then read it, right? <laughs> Let's just make law and read it later, you know, and we'll figure out what's going on. Again, this is going to start making a lot of sense to you as we go down the time.
Americans over in the land of, you know, Paris when this was going on. So there's a lot of fear that specifically Article 10 of the League of Nations Charter, which basically would say that the League of Nations could bring the United States into a war without congressional approval is going to be a non-starter. But mostly Republicans, they're going to say, no way are we going to give up our autonomy of our self-interest to these European war fighters. Um, that's just silly. So Woodrow Wilson, who came up with the League of Nations and the League of Nations goes into the Treaty of Versailles and the Germans are all excited about it. Now the United States, probably the premier world power after World War I is not going to be a part of it. And that is going to be one of the big reasons it's going to fail. And uh, again, Adolf Hitler is going to rise to power and take us into World War Two. Ha! So what do you know? We grew your brain. We prepared you for the test. We prepared you for life. Giddy up for the learning. If you haven't subscribed to Hip Hop, that's just silly. Hear so that again. Woodrow Wilson, who came up with the League of Nations, and the League of Nations goes into the Treaty of Versailles, and the Germans are all excited about it. Now the United States, probably the premier world power after World War One, is not going to be a part of it. And that is going to be one of the big reasons it's going to fail. And uh, again, Adolf Hitler is going to rise to power and take us into World War Two. No, that's not how it went. See, the League of Nations, the United Nations, uh, passed, but many nations stayed out of it. China and Japan did not want to join. Russia did not want to join, right? And so the United States, the Senate said, look, all these nations are not joining. We're not doing this. We're not forfeiting the rights as a strong nation. Let them do it, and then we can take them over. How's that? So that was the real possible alleged discussion, right? The real possible alleged discussion. That, that was the negotiation. And therefore, psychological warfare began. And so came Hitler. But first... Roosevelt had to come into office. Hear what he had to say in 1938. Both the President and Mrs. Roosevelt would talk a lot about what went on. He would say every time one gives in to Hitler, his ambitions become greater and he wants more. And I think the President felt that in the end, uh, a war was unavoidable. But Roosevelt's hands had been tied by Congress and a cautious public. Desperate to do something, Roosevelt broadcast a personal appeal to Hitler, asking him to halt further aggression. In reply, Hitler ridiculed the powerless president with withering sarcasm. In essence, he was being told by Hitler, you're not a player in this world political game. We don't account you for very much. And uh, we know that you've got a big political headache. Your isolationists are not going to let you do anything. You have all these neutrality laws. If we go to war against Britain and France, you're not going to have a significant say in things. And it, I think, deepened his frustration. He knew it. He knew Hitler was right in that sense, at least for the moment. Isn't it weird how Hitler knew exactly what to say to make the Republicans bend the knee? 
Well, like I said, it was right about there where psychological operations began. The big three, as you knew, was the U.S., the Crown, and France up until now. But no, that changed. In the same year that they ridiculed Stalin and Hitler together in a military propaganda Pravda-style cartoon, Stalin became one of the big three. Nobody quite knows the tune that Stalin is playing or the dance that he is leading Hitler. But every day it seems that the Soviet Nazi pact is more and more of a pain in the neck for the Fuhrer. And now when he's learning his Russian dance so nicely, he's got to do the turkey trot. So weird to have a cartoon that's so demeaning and yet, you know, you meet with the person you just had your government create a cartoon mocking, saying that they're puppeteering Hitler in where? Oh, that's right. Tehran, Iran. What? What do you mean? Why would the big three in 1943 meet in Tehran? That's a really good question, isn't it? Why would they meet with someone that they've labeled as insane, as horrific to his people, uh, commandeering Hitler? Makes no sense. But it did happen. Oh, yes, it did. Over the sawtoothed and snow-capped peaks of the Hamadan and Iraqi mountains to Tehran the route flown by the British and United States leaders and their staffs to meet the Soviet delegates in the drafting of the plan for victory. The start of the four-day conference in the Persian capital, which, in effect, signs the death warrant of Nazi Germany. Impressive security measures had been taken for this critical and most momentous conference which will shape the destiny of mankind. The compounds of the British legation in the Soviet embassy in Tehran were converted for the occasion into one great park, the ends of the street were sealed and closely guarded. It was at the Soviet embassy that one of the most moving ceremonies of the war took place. Marshal Stalin received the Stalingrad sword from Mr. Churchill, the magnificent token of British admiration for Russian courage, fashioned at the command of His Majesty the King. Courage? Stalin had courage? I thought the big three was with France. What happened? How did Stalin have courage? When from 1938 up until 1945, in his face, there was an active push to demean and criticize Stalin. It seems pretty bizarre that they're giving him great honors. So the question you should ask yourself is, why did they give him great honors? Did they convince him that with assistance of forfeiting any rights over Europe, they would probably leave him alone? Leave the Soviet Union alone? That was prospering on their own uh, by taking a more nationalist approach? Remember the first clip of Joseph Stalin.
British Lieutenant, acting as sword bearer, steps forward to present the sword of honor into the hands of the Prime Minister. Taking it, the Prime Minister passes it to Marshal Stalin, who, after kissing the hilt, hands it to the savior of the steel-hearted city of Stalingrad, Marshal Voroshilov. It will be remembered that Mr. Churchill celebrated his 69th birthday in Tehran. The British press unit, knowing the Premier's weakness for hats, presented him with a Persian-style titfa. Same day, Mr. Churchill went to the Soviet Embassy to meet the Shah of Persia, who was then paying a call on Mr. Roosevelt. We are deeply conscious of the hospitality and friendly help afforded the three-power delegates by the Shah. The following day, Mr. Churchill came out as an honorary colonel of the 4th Hussars and reviewed the troops drawn up in the legation compound. Twenty men of the buffs, 20 men from the Persian-Iran force, and 20 Sikhs. It was at this ceremony that he received three more birthday gifts. The PI force gave a silver cigar box, the buffs presented a silver tray made in Isfahan, and the Sikhs a miniature painted on ivory. Doesn't that sound like pharaoh violations? I'm just saying. Or what is it called? <laughs> the Logan Act. Oh my gosh, like stop. Like uh, this is really important for people to watch this. They honored him. The Iranians gave him all this. And if you guys go back and you look at some old shows where I uh, broke down uranium, uh, this is where the deals were cut with Russia and Iran. Remember, we will leave you alone and you guys can do all the enriching you fucking want. But once you finish it, Iran, to what percentage? Then you're going to send it to Russia. Russia, you're going to tidy it up. And then Russia, you're going to send it to France, who then will sell it in America, whatever. None of your business. But how's this? We'll give you access to create nuclear power. We won't make nuclear power. You will. And this is how you guys get to be independent and do whatever you want. I did explain to you how long, long ago through treaties and conversations, the whole enriching uranium happened. Well, we have H-bombs and we have this, but here's what we're going to do. Russia, you work with us and we'll leave the Soviet Union alone. And I know the Arabs, well, the Iranians are very strong and they own a lot of land, these Persians. They've got the Iraqis under their skirt. There's going to be a problem with these Muslims, right? So they're like, hey, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're all going to have uranium to like experiment and do shit. But here's how we're going to prove to you that we will not attack you. All the uranium in, uh, in the world will be coming to Iran. They will enrich it up to a certain point. And see, if we're giving you all the uranium, Iran, you have nothing to worry about. And then, Iran, you have these agreements with the Soviets, and you guys see eye to eye. You'll just pass it on to Russia. And Russia, what your job will be for the whole world is to enrich it to the next level. 
And then once you enrich it to that level, we'll then recycle that. You know, this is how we can plow through the uranium because we're telling everyone we're not making weapons and just uh, kind of keep cycling it out and enriching it the way we want. Listen to that old show. Very old, a couple years ago. And now this is starting to make sense as to how deals are made. Their guarantee of not being fucked with was the fact that Iran and Russia enriched up to certain points all the uranium on the planet. While all of us are thinking that no one is using this, my gosh, what do you think is powering things in alleged space? And where are we shipping all this to? And why are we worried about bombs coming down from the sky? So weird. There's so much to learn. Now let's continue. The presentations were made by Company Sergeant Major Calloway, Corporal Sutcliffe, and Kirpal Singh. Mr. Churchill was almost overrun as he signaled the men to come nearer so that he might thank them. It was the 10th Army's turn to cheer the chief. For the first time in this war, the three Allied leaders had at last been brought together from the ends of the earth. Following the design for Japanese punishment framed in the Cardo meetings came the conference to decide the fate of Germany. The joint authors of this momentous declaration have planned the shape of things to come. Right? Listen, Russia, Soviet Union, Iran, you don't have to join into this dollar thing, this currency. You don't have to do it. Here's how we're going to guarantee that if you leave us alone to do what we want around you, we won't bother you because everyone's getting the uranium through you. This will be the deal. Everyone will know. Trust us. Allied chiefs of staff have formulated operational plans so gigantic in scope that students of war are already forecasting a crushing all-out offensive involving many millions of men. They feel that preparations are now very close to completion. But let us leave speculation to the wise. Let us dwell upon the concrete things that are open for all to discuss. The infinitely gratifying thought that Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin have set the ball rolling for the grand finale. That Britain, America and Russia are bound together in invincible unity. Purple, Brook and Cunningham. Three of the 70 British delegates who conferred with an almost equal number of American and Soviet representatives. Would it be accurate to suggest that Mr. Churchill wore the uniform of Air Commodore of the RAF in recognition of the colossal air blows being delivered by the Royal Air Force? Perhaps so. The stage is set for unprecedented warfare for our tomorrows and concord among nations for the days to follow. The stage indeed was set. Now, the big three power meeting. Oh, guess where that one happened? <laughs> guess. It happened the next year. Same people. Where did they meet? We've talked about this before, but now you're going to revisit it with new eyes. Where did they meet? Oh, that's right. 
Ukraine. See, it all begins and ends in the same damn places. More specifically, uh, Crimea portion of Ukraine, right? <laughs> it's so weird. So here they are in Yalta again the next year. beautiful Crimean seaside town of Yalta was the setting for the latest and greatest conference of the Big Three. One of the first to be greeted at the Yalta airfield by the Foreign Commissar, Mr. Molotov, was Field Marshal Alexander. Mr. Churchill arrives direct from Malta. Kremlin guards form a guard of honor and march past in true. I just wanted to point out uh, he came straight from Malta. Continue. Red Army style after being inspected by Mr. Churchill and President Roosevelt. The meetings were to be held in the beautiful Livadia Palace, once the home of a Russian prince. The former state banqueting hall is now the conference room. The American Secretary of State, Statinius, and the American Ambassador, Averill Harriman, arrive with their British equivalents, Mr. Eden and Sir Archibald Clark Carr. Mr. Churchill makes his appearance for the first of the meetings, suitably dressed for the occasion. I'm sorry, did you guys catch that? He was suitably dressed. Finally, into the palace courtyard sweeps the long black car bearing one of the greatest military leaders of all time, Marshal of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin. Oh, look at that hand. Representatives of the three powers take their places for the beginning of the Crimean Conference. Mr. Maisky, Deputy Foreign Commissar and one-time Ambassador to Britain, has a few words to say to his chief. For eight days, these pleasant surroundings saw the formation of one great plan after another concerning the future of our enemies and of ourselves. In between the long hours of discussion, the three leaders had many lighter moments. On this occasion, the subject appears to be the Prime Minister's hat. The 
Crimean confidence has resulted in many great decisions for the future. But we may be sure that the first and greatest aim of the Allied leaders is a speedy and decisive end to this war and a guarantee that German military power will never rise again. Right? They should never, never rise again. Never. Now let's go to the next big three conference. Five years later, they meet on Germany. Let's listen to the G3, the big three, big three. Damn, they give themselves some cool names, right? Big three. Big three foreign ministers meet in Washington. Dean Acheson, fresh from his notable job at the San Francisco conference, arrives to confer with Great Britain's Herbert Morrison on a pact giving Western Germany virtual independence. With Francis Robert Schumann, they discuss a new role for Germany in the defense of Western Europe. I'm sorry. Did you guys hear that? Let's see. What were they discussing again? Because now the big three changed. It's France again. Virtual independence. With Francis Robert Schumann, they discuss a new role for Germany in the defense of Western Europe. Huh. So now Germany's role will be the defense of Western Europe. That's very interesting. Didn't know that. Well, now let's go back a few years. We need to see how Czechoslovakia was betrayed by the West to Hitler. Oh, what? Yeah. See, this is how they play. This is when they were mocking uh, Stalin, right? 38 to 45, you know, when they were making nice, they were mocking him. But in the meantime, while they were making nice, they were sending him a bunch of, you know, propaganda like, hey, we want to give you some Russianized American shit. Want to be friends? And he would turn around and say, fuck you. Well, that's because of this. How the West gave Czechoslovakia to the not Nazis. September 30th, 1938. October 28th, 1918. Czechoslovakia declared its independence following the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in World War One. Within the new state structure was a mix of ethnic groups and territories, all with different historical, political, and economic traditions. Most of the territory was inhabited by Czechs and Slovaks, but more than 20% of the population were ethnic Germans, roughly 3 million people, the majority of which resided in the Sudetenland, a strip of land bordering Germany and Austria. Many of the Sudeten Germans heavily opposed the Czechoslovak government and its policies and wanted to join Austria or Germany. Although the constitution of the new country called for the equality of all citizens, the political leaders had obvious preferences towards Czech and Slovak nationalism, which saw violence and heavy anti-German sentiment against the Sudeten Germans. Ultimately, the government resorted to violence to quell civil conflicts between the two regions and proceeded to fully integrate the region by September 10, 1919. In the years that followed, some progress was made to integrate the Sudeten Germans and other minorities in Czechoslovakia, but they remained largely underrepresented in the government and the army. This was further exacerbated by the Great Depression, which hit the highly industrialized Sudeten Germans more than most. By 1936, 60% of the unemployed in Czechoslovakia were German. Meanwhile, in Germany, the National Socialist Party had come into power. A key pillar of Hitler's foreign policy was to unite all German-speaking people into one collective Reich. 
As such, Hitler created plans to reunite Germany with his own homeland, Austria, as well as taking control of the Sudetenland. In 1933, Konrad Henlein founded the Sudeten German Party, or SDP, in Czechoslovakia. The SDP soon captured two-thirds of the votes in ethnic German districts, and by 1935 was the second-largest political party in the country. It's unclear whether or not the Sudeten German Party was initially established as a branch of the Nazi Party, but what is clear is that in the years that followed, the Nazis became a strong supporter and financier of the party. Encouraged by the support, the German minority living in the Sudetenland began demanding its own autonomy from Czechoslovakia. They claimed that they were being oppressed by the national government. In 1938, emboldened by the Anschluss, Nazi Germany's annexation of Austria, Hitler met with Henlein and established a paramilitary organization consisting of ethnic German citizens of Czechoslovakia. They were housed, trained, and equipped by the German army to conduct terrorist operations against the Czechs. Although a surprise invasion was rejected by the Nazis, Hitler continued to make antagonizing speeches, demanding that the Sudetenland was united with Germany. War now seemed imminent. After the horrors of World War I, however, neither France nor Britain were prepared to defend Czechoslovakia and wanted to avoid all conflict at all cost. Prime Minister of Britain, Neville Chamberlain, was especially opposed to any conflict. His foreign policy was centered on appeasement, which involved giving military, political, and territorial concessions to Germany in order to prevent war. So, in other words, this kind of sounds like Ukraine, where the own country itself is killing its own people. But was it? Because that was the first time that Hitler got someone to approach him. Sounds like the same operation being deployed with Ukraine right now. This was in part due to Chamberlain's belief that Britain was still unprepared for a war. Indeed, a report by British chiefs of staff said that Britain would have been unable to forcibly prevent Hitler from taking Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain also resented giving in to these conditions. According to French Prime Minister Daladier, it made Chamberlain's blood boil to see Germany getting away with it time after time and increasing her domination over free peoples. Appeasement at the time, however, seemed like the lesser of two evils. In April 1938, Chamberlain met with Daladier to discuss the ever-escalating situation. Chamberlain saw no way to prevent Hitler from destroying Czechoslovakia if he chose, and argued that Prague should make territorial concessions to Germany. Both leaders believed peace could only be maintained if the Sudetenland was handed over to the Nazis. In mid-September, Chamberlain traveled to Germany and met with the Führer. Hitler agreed not to take military action without any further discussion. Chamberlain proposed that all areas of Czechoslovakia that were more than 50% German should be turned over. The Czechoslovakians, however, were not consulted, but the government was forced to accept the proposal anyway on September 21st. The next day, Chamberlain flew again to Germany to meet Hitler. To his dismay, Hitler had increased his demands. In addition to occupying the Sudetenland, Hitler now wanted all Czechoslovakians to leave the area by September 28th, which was just one week away. The Czechoslovakian government, the British cabinet, and the French all rejected the idea, and the sides began to mobilize for an imminent war. In one final last-ditch attempt to avoid a conflict, a desperate Chamberlain convened a four-power conference to settle the dispute. On September 29, 1938, Chamberlain, Hitler, Daladier, and the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini met in Munich. 
Hitler was angry and felt humiliated that he was now at the mercy of the three powers' arbitration. He refused to allow any Czech diplomats into the meeting. A deal was reached in less than a day, and the four leaders signed the so-called Munich Agreement. The agreement allowed the German army to occupy the Sudetenland, and an international commission would decide on the future of all other disputed areas, including the areas that Hungary claimed as their own. Chamberlain and Hitler also signed a paper which declared their desires to resolve their differences through diplomacy rather than war. Once again, the Czechoslovakians were not consulted. France and Britain told Czechoslovakia that they could resist Germany alone or submit to the agreement. Under pressure, they chose to submit. On October 5th, the president of Czechoslovakia, Edvard Benes, resigned from his position after realizing that his country was facing collapse. Chamberlain shortly returned to Britain after the agreement had been signed. He was famously seen waving the declaration in the air while announcing, Peace for our time. This was, of course, highly ironic, considering the events that followed shortly. Importantly, the Sudetenland was not only the home of three million ethnic Germans, but also contained two-thirds of Czechoslovakia's coal resources, 70% of its iron, and 70% of its electrical power store. Czechoslovakia was home to a number of munition and armor-producing facilities, most notably the Skoda factory. This was a major manufacturer of guns, tanks, and artillery. The German military utilized many of these products, and the Czech designs were later transitioned into German designs. It almost sounds like they wanted Germany to have access to all these resources. I mean, just playing a devil's advocate here. The Sudetenland was also where Czechoslovakia had built expansive defensive border fortifications. Without those resources and defenses, the country was extremely vulnerable to a German invasion and total domination. Indeed, only one month after the Munich Agreement came into fruition came the first Vienna Award. This saw largely Slovak areas in the south of Czechoslovakia go to Hungary. Nazi Germany and Italy had long sought a non-violent way to support Hungary's territorial claims, returning areas that it had lost after World War I. With Czechoslovakia on its knees, the country had no choice but to give up the land. Similarly, a part of the country in the Northeast was occupied and annexed by Poland under the pretense of protecting ethnic Poles. On March 14, 1939, Czechoslovakia... So they were taken over to be protected. Poland's like, yeah, we're just going to take over this land because we're going to protect the Polish that were half Czech, half Polish. So, you know, we're not doing it because we want to take the land from you. We're just doing something nice. So we're just going to protect them. Okay. So you don't worry your little head. You don't need that big of a country anyway, since, you know, the Germans own most of the good part of it. Slovakia lost more land as Slovakia announced complete independence. This came after Hitler convened with a newly formed autonomous Slovak government and pushed for the unanimous agreement to separate from Czechoslovakia. Isn't that convenient? Like, they cause all these issues, they hand it over to Hitler, who's a danger, and they split up this nation that was there because the people wouldn't just listen. They had their own constitution. They're like, yeah, let's just take it out because they're not getting on board with the plan. And so this is a problem for them, right? Because Hitler was the bad guy, created, recruited more people so he can take more people down. So weird. It looks exactly like what's happening today. 
Oh, we can't separate. Maybe we'll separate some of Ukraine and give it. Yeah, we gave him Crimea and the plan didn't work to take over. So it's like, oh, now we're having more disputes. The following day, another region, Carpatho, Ukraine, announced its separation from the country. Fearing complete annihilation, the Czech prime minister asked Hitler to protect what remained of the nation. Hitler obliged, creating the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. In the end, Hitler would betray all those he had dealt with, and by September 1944, all of Hungary, Poland, and Slovakia were occupied by the German army. At the time, the Munich Agreement was celebrated in Europe for preventing a war, but in effect had marked the end of Czechoslovakia. The agreement emboldened Hitler's and Chamberlain's policy of appeasement, but was ultimately discredited when Nazi Germany invaded Poland in 1939, triggering the Second World War. The Munich Agreement is now remembered in history as a byword for the futility of appeasing aggressive totalitarian states. You can't appease them. You should just annihilate them. See what we did with Czechoslovakia? Totally worked. Now let's fast forward. Let's see how Europe changed after World War II. We'll skip through a few pieces, but it's kind of important that you see it. You know how that mini reset happened and how it worked for the Europeans since not everyone complied. You know, we had to make a list, check it twice and make sure that we put other people in their place. Nineteen forty-five, and as Western armies sweep across Germany, voices crackle on the field radios, speaking in English and in Russian. Until finally, those allied in the struggle come together on the River Elbe for Europe and the world, an unforgettable moment. And if only all had continued to act in the spirit of that moment, what a Europe, what a world might then have emerged. West of the Elbe runs the River Rhine, for centuries the highway, yet the divider. The river of the Goths and Romans, Christians and pagans, free men and slaves. A river with a history of strife, for it runs through the heartland of Europe, the continent so long torn between races and factions that only dreamers like Charlemagne could visualize it as a peaceful unit. But in spite of the bloodshed, most of it so recent, one Europe is at last becoming a fact, born out of the very dragon's teeth of war, a harvest from the seeds of Europe's own destruction. 1945, and the end of yet another European war. And who has won, when in fact all have lost? A war in which more civilians died than fighting men, not in hundreds, but in millions. But they, at least, were spared the aftermath. Much had gone forever, and what was in its place? In the aftermath, but mere existence, where an undamaged roof made a palace, 
a loaf of bread, a banquet. One long lineup with want ever there in the queue. What a Europe to grow old in. What a Europe to grow up in. A black market where even pride was for sale to the highest bidder. A Europe in which degradation had brought the end of self-respect and human values hocked back to the jungle. But in order that wheels could turn again, some had to put faith in others. They had to trust and sit round the same table to find by agreement the means of putting Europe, indeed the whole world, to rights. Already it was evident that the Europe of 1939 had gone forever. The annexation of the Baltic states, the huge advances of the Red Armies had placed enormous areas of Eastern Europe under Soviet domination. And Marshal Stalin was hardly the man to yield over the table that which he had seized and battled. Nevertheless, he had agreed on free elections, and amid the ruin of countries such as Poland, they were held. Though how free they were was a matter of opinion. With communists already in key posts, it was little surprise that things went their way. And if anything else was needed to make their victory certain, there was always the presence of the secret police and the numberless soldiers of the occupying Red Army. And peoples exhausted by war were hardly likely to resist such coercion with determination. For all their energies were engaged putting one brick back upon another. In Western Europe, where destruction had been lighter, morale was much higher. Here, regimentation had been accepted only because without it, winning the war would not have been possible. Now, with the end of that war, the essential freedoms of democracy burst out with new vigor. There was a determination to see to it that such a disaster would never happen again. And for the more reflective, there was, too, the realization that to be done with insecurity, Europe must be united. But how could these Europeans be united when they were all so different? Here was the blood of many races, nationalities, each with their own traditions and ways of life, not to mention a score of different languages. They might smile at each other, but as neighbors, they seemed to have little in common. Sometimes a frontier was a natural barrier, a river or a channel. But more often than not, it was merely an invisible line across fields or streets. An invisible line and an attitude of mind. So in other words, this is when they started discussing unifying Europe. Well, they're all different people. They all speak a different language. But we must bring them together. So we stand in solidarity and promote progressive values where we are one people of this planet. Stuff like that. Yet even in this time of preoccupation with essentials, there were those who realized already what must be done. It is not a movement of parties, but a movement of people. It must be all for all. Europe can only be united by the heartfelt wish and vehement expression of the great majority of all the peoples, in all the parties, in all the freedom-loving countries, no matter where they dwell 
or how they vote. But all very well for such as Winston Churchill to make speeches in 1947. He had self-respect. He had enough to eat. He had a place in which to live. Unity. Was this the earth in which to plant such seeds? At such a time, unity was well down the list of priorities. Anyway, unity was supposed to stem from the United Nations. And their lack of progress was such that when delegates from East and West sat down together, hopes were so thin that even they were cynical about them. How could there be accord when the East blocked every move in its direction? In the economic chaos of this post-war period, communism saw its greatest chance. Wherever there was dissatisfaction, there they could fan the flames of revolt. World Revolution, the end justified any means. In countries like Czechoslovakia, infiltration overcame the obstacles. At first, communist leaders paid lip service to democratic principles, treating the veteran President Benish with the respect he deserved as head of state. But then, they whipped up left-wing popular feeling into a mood of taking drastic measures to obtain not just the power due to them by the votes cast, but total control of the traditionally democratic Czech state. Soon, President Benish was forced to retire and die broken-hearted in virtual exile. In the Czech parliament, the new leaders of the land made their debut within short years of peace. The Soviet area of domination had spread alarmingly over Europe. How could the Brussels powers alone halt further advance. And so for poor old Europe, talk of war yet again, and one brick hardly better than another. What hopes now for the Marshall Plan? And so it wasn't surprising that the Europeans read their papers with not a little cynicism and despair. And then they read how 12 nations in Washington had signed what came to be known as the North Atlantic Treaty. And if they had doubts about the new organization, NATO, the need for it was proved at once by the virulence of the Soviet and communist reaction. This was driving a rift between East and West. This was an affront to all peace-loving peoples. They paraded the dove as a symbol of peace. And peace was their slogan. But was this the peace for which so many had died? In Normandy, at Alamein, in front of Stalingrad and the hills of Italy and the streets of Paris? Was this the aftermath they had envisaged? And so the peoples of Western Europe pondered the new step and decided that it was indeed the only way. And so they backed the Atlantic Pact and gave strength to its council. For they saw that there were worse things than war, and that to avert war was to be prepared for it. And so Europe took the move towards defensive rearmament very calmly. And in spite of all the threats, when NATO's first supreme commander, Dwight D. Eisenhower, arrived in Paris to take his post, 
the planned demonstrations came to naught. In a temporary headquarters in Paris, the military staff of the Alliance began their task of building the continent's defences. And although they didn't realise it, they were taking the first steps to a Western unity that was to extend far beyond the military field. Soldiers of many nations working together in peacetime for a common cause. That it was going to be far beyond military unity only. Mm-hmm. It had no executive powers, and its members could only advise their governments of the general trend of its thinking. But it was at least a common meeting place, somewhere where Europe could be viewed as a whole. A start, but there was a long way to go. The arteries of the continent might be throbbing now with new life, yet still the age-old barriers loomed up. It seemed that little short of atomic bombs could shift the walls of rubber stamps, secure and rock-like as Cologne Cathedral or the citadel of Carcassonne. And yet the solution was easier than anyone imagined. For the necessity for unity affected millions where it hurt most, in their pockets. The needs of trade and a higher standard of living were the factors that finally pushed down the walls. Once the steelworks and coal mines of the Tsar, the Ruhr and Lorraine were the crucibles of war. From them came all the cannons. And without them, the war would have reverted to an affair of bows and arrows. And then in one step, by one agreement, all were brought together under one community. The European community of coal and steel. The dream of Francis Schumann turned into reality. In the city of Luxembourg, the community set up its headquarters and went quietly to work. In point of fact, the idea was purely an economic one. Six West... So in other words, Schumann... You should look up and see who this Schumann dude is uh, from France because he just hopped on to the big three, you know, right after they got rid of, you know, hey, Stalin, we don't want to play anymore. You did what we needed you to do. This went kind of out of control, you know, so thanks, but no thanks for taking France back. And so this is how the EU was implemented and how they used it to cut down borders is, isn't it easier if we just have free trade and we just agree to trade within ourselves that way we're more powerful than these other countries that are like yeah we don't want what you're selling and sticking to themselves we should all bind together some european nations who dealt in coal and steel decided to cooperate to prevent overlapping waste of effort and unrealistic prices to establish in this field one common market a phrase that the world was soon to hear more of their reasons were economic Yet by this one act, a handful of practical visionaries had done more for European unity than all those who had striven by blood and force throughout centuries. The business of making swords had been turned into making plowshares because there was little future in swords. In the meantime, at NATO headquarters in Paris, equally important moves had been made. A project to form a true European army to include forces from Western Germany had failed. But in its place, by general agreement of all the NATO nations, the Federal Republic of Germany was invited to become their 15th ally. A step vital to the alliance. A step vital, too, for European unity. For it placed the Federal Republic firmly within the Western orbit and out of the old no-man's land. That was 1955, 
Since then, old Europe has seen much. Profitless summit meetings, frustration, Hungary, Cuba. And yet all the while, the changing face. Now in the heartland of Europe, the defensive forces of NATO provide routine spectacles. For by now, they've been around for more than a decade. But familiarity does not always breed consent. Many of the bystanders were themselves born after the Atlantic Pact was signed. Naturally, they are more interested in how things work rather than why. And why is not now quite so clear as it once was. Why in the heartland can there still be seen men and women wearing uniforms of states far across the ocean? Why NATO today? Today, the River Rhine is too busy to consider strife and warring factions and hostilities between Christians. Right, there's no point. It's a long haul from Switzerland to the sea. And we have trade, right? NATO is so amazing, we have trade. Now let's hop to 2018 and see how that trade was going. And who was really funding the whole thing and who started it? I mean, it was very convenient that from an EU, it became a NATO, and then a NATO that became a UN, and then the UN that gave the EU, because, you know, the more you make it look like a pyramid, the more sense it makes. First of all, it's great to see you again, and uh, we are going to discuss many important issues at the summit. Among them is defense spending. And we all agree that we have to do more. I agree with you that we have to make sure that allies are investing more. The good news is that uh, allies have started to invest more in uh, defense. Uh, after years of cutting defense budgets, they have started to uh, add billions to their defense budgets. And uh, last year was the biggest increase uh, in defense spending across Europe and Canada in a generation. Why was that last year? It's also because of your leadership, because of your clear message. And, uh, and, uh, they won't write that. But no, I have said it before, and, and, but the thing is that uh, uh, it really has... Uh, uh, it's, it, your message is having an impact, uh, and uh, we are going to build on that to make sure that we have further increases. Uh, you initiated last year that uh, all allies are going to develop national plans on how to spend more on defense. And based on these national plans, we now estimate that the European allies and Canada will add 266 uh, uh, extra US dollars uh, for defense from now until 20 uh, billion US dollars until, uh, until 2024. So, so this is really adding some extra money. It helps, uh, and we are moving in the right direction, but we still, uh, but we still have to, to do more. And that is what we're going to address at the summit later on today. Let me also add that, that strong NATO is good for Europe, but it's also good for the United States. Uh, the US military presence in Europe helps uh, to protect Europe, but it also helps the United States project uh, uh, power to the Middle East, to Africa. And uh, I think also that the cloud, the military cloud of, uh, of Europe, uh, the economic cloud, the political cloud, also is helpful dealing with uh, with Russia. And we'll so for those of you that are watching, and I apologize for the no sound thing, I'm on a window system today. Anyway, uh, as you can see, our president isn't really impressed. He's already put them in the hot seat. You guys aren't paying your way. Why is the United States funding all of NATO? 
This seems weird. I don't seem to understand it. What else are we funding? Oh, you caught us. You don't know what's going on. So let's just leave it alone and we'll be fine. I want to draw your attention to the flags. As you can see over there, there's a flag with a star. If you remember at the beginning of this uh, show, I showed you the idea that was brought in from the U.S. Right? So, do you need had the same freaking logo that was supposedly established 60 years after that? See, this is where you guys can start to see what's going on. They're treating the president as if he's an idiot and has been receiving compartmentalized information and doesn't understand that the United States created NATO, which it did, as you saw, and is in control of NATO. And therefore, that is why they paid most of it. So now they're like, well, we'll just tell this guy, whatever, you caught us. Because if he figures out the scam that we've been running across the planet, well, then we're going to have a problem, right? We're going to have a big problem. We can't unpack that. We've got to impeach him for having a, wait a minute, we'll talk about that. We look forward to the meeting you're going to have with President Putin, uh, and I think that leaders are also looking forward to uh, your thoughts about the meeting with President Putin at uh, later on. Uh, well, I have to say, I think uh, it's very sad when Germany makes a massive oil and gas deal with Russia, where you're supposed to be guarding against Russia, and Germany goes out and pays billions and billions of dollars a year to Russia. So we're protecting Germany, we're protecting France, we're protecting all of these countries. And then numerous of the countries go out and make a pipeline deal with Russia, where they're paying billions of dollars into the coffers of Russia. So we're supposed to protect you against Russia, but they're paying billions of dollars to Russia. And I think that's very inappropriate. And the former chancellor of Germany is the head of the pipeline company that's supplying the gas. Uh, ultimately, Germany will have almost 70 percent of their country controlled by Russia with natural gas. So you tell me, is that appropriate? I mean, we, I've been complaining about this from the time I got in. It should have never been allowed to have happened. But Germany is totally controlled by Russia because they were getting from 60 to 70 percent of their energy from Russia and a new pipeline. And you tell me if that's appropriate, because I think it's not. And I think it's a very bad thing for NATO. And I don't think it should have happened. And I think we have to talk to Germany about it. On top of that, Germany is just paying a little bit over one percent, whereas the United States in actual numbers is paying four point two percent. Can we just think back to how we had Germany's cojones in our hands, how we limited their military, how we made them pay and sign the bill of guilt. And yet now, for some reason, they're at the center of NATO. It sounds super bizarre, almost like the Nazis never left. Of a much larger GDP. So I think that's inappropriate also. You know, we're protecting Germany. We're protecting France. We're protecting everybody. And yet we're paying a lot of money to protect. Now, this has been going on for decades. This has been brought up by other presidents, but other presidents never did anything about it because I don't think they understood it or they just didn't want to get involved. But I have to bring it up because I think it's very unfair to our country. It's very unfair to our taxpayers. And I think that these countries have to step it up, not over a 10 year period, they have to step it up immediately. Germany is a rich country. They talk about they're going to increase it a tiny bit by 2030. 
Well, they could increase it immediately tomorrow and have no problem. I don't think it's fair to the United States. So we're going to have to do something because we're not going to put up with it. We can't put up with it. And it's inappropriate. So we have to talk about the billions and billions of dollars that's being paid to the country that we're supposed to be protecting you against. You know, everybody's everybody's talking about it all over the world. They'll say, well, wait a minute. We're supposed to be protecting you from Russia. But why are you paying billions of dollars to Russia for energy? Why are countries in NATO, namely Germany, having a large percentage of their energy needs paid, you know, to billions of dollars? All right. Let's pause this video right there where he's complaining of why are we paying all this money to Russia if the whole point of creating NATO was to buffer Russia? I mean, you, you guys just heard all about that. To understand that better, we have to understand the Warsaw Pact. That is going to come in a crash course right now because that will then, going back to listening to how dumb it sounds, maybe you can figure out what's really going on. Formation of the Warsaw Treaty Organization, the Cold War, 1955. The threat of West Germany's entry into NATO in 1955 caused the USSR to retaliate by forming the Warsaw Pact, or Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation, and Mutual Assistance. Like NATO, a collective military was formed, but signed among the Soviet satellite states of Eastern Europe and was dominated by the USSR. If one country within the pact was attacked, the others would come to its aid. This created a counterbalance to NATO. The Warsaw Pact, as the name implies, was signed in Warsaw, Poland on May 14, 1955 by the USSR, Poland, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and Albania. The remilitarization of West Germany and its inclusion into NATO in 1955 was seen as a direct threat to the Soviet Union. The collective security of all these nations together would give the Soviet Union and its satellite states a greater defense against NATO and negotiating power over it. Apart from this motive... Wait a minute. Are you saying that we had the Berlin Wall and uh, West Germany went with the Americans and the British and the French, and then the Soviet Union that they said was super bad recognized all these states, East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia again, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, Albania, all these states as independent satellite states. Hmm. Doesn't sound like the history we've been taught, but so weird when we pay attention that it's always been there. We've just never been taught it. Motivation. The Warsaw Pact also worked as a way of strengthening the Soviet Union's control over the communist satellite states that made up the Eastern Bloc. And in actual fact, now the Berlin Wall will make sense to you, which had a lot of music going on and a lot of press. Civil unrest in the Eastern Bloc, such as the uprising of 1953 in East Germany, was a cause of concern for the Soviet Union. The military forces of the Warsaw Pact members were placed under the command of a Soviet commander-in-chief. Soviet troops were also kept in these countries to deter any of them from leaving the Soviet sphere of control. The Warsaw Pact would cause problems for the Soviet Union just a year later in 1956, as Hungary and Poland both staged uprisings. For example, in Hungary, the new government wanted to withdraw from the Warsaw Pact and see the removal of Soviet troops in its territory. Warsaw Pact troops would be used to crush uprisings within the satellite states throughout the Cold War, such as the Prague Spring in 1968. 
the Warsaw Pact troops, numbering over half a million, were made up of Soviet Russians, Bulgarians, Polish, and Hungarians. Romania, Albania, and East Germany refused to participate, and soon after, Albania formally withdrew from the Warsaw Pact as a result of the invasion. The Warsaw Pact officially came to an end in 1991 following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but by the late 1980s, it was already ineffective due to sweeping political changes within the satellite states. Subscribe for more history videos. Oh, convenient. So they took out the satellite states. NATO has since then enjoined these satellite states to it. It has grown its size and its effect. We have the EU in place, which is the economic portion. Then we have the WHO, which is the world one. So there's like a higher level. So the United Nations in there feeds the EU, NATO, and all these other things. Which, by the way, NATO, the biggest army is the U.S. The biggest military force in NATO right now is the United States of America. And which one was the second one? I've told you this before. It's Turkey. Turkey, 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 Turkey. Now you're going to understand the rest of this conversation a lot better, considering that all these unions and all these treaties that have been created and dissolved have been to counter Russia, but... It's being paid to the country that we're supposed to be protecting you against. You know, everybody's, everybody's talking about it all over the world. They'll say, well, wait a minute, we're supposed to be protecting you from Russia. But why are you paying billions of dollars to Russia for energy? Why are countries in NATO, namely Germany, having a large percentage of their energy needs paid, you know, to Russia and, and taken care of by Russia? Now, if you look at it, Germany is a captive of Russia because they supply. They got rid of their coal plants. They got rid of their nuclear. They're getting so much of the oil and gas from Russia. I think it's something that NATO has to look at. I think it's very inappropriate. You and I agree that it's inappropriate. I don't know what you can do about it now, but it certainly doesn't seem to make sense that uh, they pay billions of dollars to Russia, and now we have to defend them against Russia. You know, NATO is an alliance of 29 nations, and uh, there are sometimes differences and uh, different views and also some disagreements, and the uh, gas... Uh, uh, pipeline from Russia to Germany is one issue where allies uh, disagree. But the strength of NATO is that despite these differences, we have always been able to unite around our core task uh, to protect and defend each other because we understand that we are stronger together than apart. I think that two world wars and the Cold War thought was that uh, we are stronger together than apart. Stronger together. We heard that from Hillary. By the way, for those of you that are watching, as you can notice, the President of the United States has nothing in his glasses. I just wanted to point that out. Um, but how can you be together when a country is getting its energy from the person you want protection against or from the group that you want protection? Because you understand that uh, when we stand together, also when uh, dealing with Russia, we are stronger. I think what we have seen is that... No, you're just making Russia richer. Well, you're not dealing with Russia, you're making Russia richer. So I think that even during the Cold War, uh, NATO allies were trading with uh, Russia. Then there have been uh, disagreements about what kind of uh, trade arrangements we should, uh, we should go I think to. trade is wonderful. I think energy is a whole different story. I think energy is a much different story than normal trade. And you have a country like Poland that won't accept the gas. You take a look at some of the countries, they won't accept it because they don't want to be captive to Russia. Mm -hmm. 
But Germany, as far as I'm concerned, is captive to Russia because it's getting so much of its energy from Russia. So we're supposed to protect Germany, but they're getting their energy from Russia. Explain that. And it can't be explained. You know that. All right. Thank you, Press. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Press. We're not going to talk about this anymore. This is embarrassing. Please exit. So now let's go back to the last meeting of the big three with Russia. If you remember, it happened in Ukraine or uh, Crimea region of Ukraine. And Ukraine has been the center of a lot of things. I mean, even 1945, where they kind of convinced the Russians, hey, uh, we'll talk. We'll give you and it on. Uranium. Let's seal this deal. And then you'll wipe your hands of us. Don't worry anything about us. We've got you. This is your security measure, that you have the uranium. Yet, Ukraine is back in the news, and one has to wonder, what is it with Ukraine? You soften the GOP platform on Ukraine. Uh, I wasn't involved in that. Honestly, your I was not were. involved. Yeah, I was not involved in that. I'd like to... Uh, uh, I'd have to take a look at it, but I was not involved. Do you know what they did? They softened it, I heard, but I was not involved. They took away the part of the platform calling for provision of lethal weapons to Ukraine to defend themselves. Why is that a good idea? Uh, it's Look, you know, I have my own ideas. He's not going into Ukraine, okay, just so you understand. He's not going to go into Ukraine. All right, you can mark it down, you can put it down, you can take it anywhere well, you want. he's already there, isn't he? Okay, well, he's there in a certain way, but I'm not there. You have Obama there, and frankly, that whole part of the world is a mess under Obama with all the strength that you're talking about and all of the power of NATO and all of this. In the meantime, he's going away. He take, takes Crimea. He's sort of, I mean... But you said you might recognize that. I'm going to take a look at it. But, you know, the people of Crimea, from what I've heard, would rather be with Russia than where they were. And you have to look at that also. Now, that was under, just so you understand, that was done under Obama's administration. And as far as Ukraine is concerned, it's a mess and that's under the Obama's administration with his strong ties to NATO. So with all of these strong ties to NATO, Ukraine is a mess. Crimea has been taken. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. You said we will do better. And yet we'll have a better relationship with Russia and having a good relationship, maybe. And having a good relationship with Russia is a good thing, not a bad thing. Well, it seems like Russia, Russia, Russia was very important. And so was Ukraine. Because if you have to remember, the reason they impeached him was because of a phone call with the Ukrainian prime minister. See, now all of this will come to focus and you will understand exactly what's happening if you kind of take a step back and kind of see it the way you should. Take a listen. Authorities, Ukraine, 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 Ukraine. Donald Trump is being impeached. And for some reason, it's all about this place, Ukraine. But how come? We're more than 5,000 miles from Washington. It's a complicated story about corruption, conspiracy theories, and Russia. And it all begins with a phone call. On July the 25th last year, Ukraine's new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, spoke to Donald Trump. Mr. Zelensky wanted to discuss American military assistance, but Mr. Trump said he wanted a favor. President Trump was withholding hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid. His opponents smelled a rat. They said the president was abusing his power, using his office for personal political gain. 
I solemnly and sadly open the debate on the impeachment of the President of the United States. So what about that aid that Mr. Trump was withholding? Why is it so important for Ukraine? To figure out how we got here, you've got to go back a bit. Ukraine used to be part of the old Soviet Union. After gaining its independence in 1991, it found itself stuck between Russia and the West. Russia was weak, and the West, in the shape of NATO and the EU, was spreading rapidly east to the very borders of the former Soviet Union. Ukraine is the battlefield between autocracy and democracy. And Ukrainian people already decided, we want to move to the West. When Ukrainians demanded closer ties with Europe, a pro-Russian president was forced to flee the country. Russia stepped in, annexing one part of Ukraine and arming separatists in another. The two countries have basically been at war for almost six years. The Russian elite has not still accepted the fact that Ukraine is an independent entity. For them, this is still a painful recognition. Right? Of course. People need to recognize that. That's why in 2009, we sent the IG of the NSA, Robert Storch, and his wife, a lawyer, to create the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. This is before Crimea was annexed (laughs) or became a territory of Russia because they wanted to. And they voted so. Therefore, the people wanted that. But again, think again. (laughs) How weird is it that the United States created a National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine with today's IG of the NSA and his wife, which, by the way, is still running it. ...which is ahead. And until they have not recognized that, Ukraine will always be in trouble. More than 13,000 people have been killed in this war. Without American military aid, Ukraine would struggle to defend itself. But what about the favor? What was President Trump asking for in that phone call last July? Well, he referred to two allegations and asked Zelensky to investigate both. One, that Ukraine had somehow meddled in America's 2016 presidential election. And two, that one of Mr. Trump's main rivals in this year's election, Joe Biden, had abused his own political influence to prevent an investigation into his son's business interests in Ukraine. They're not based on real facts. They're based on fake news, on this cocktail of fake news. So where is this uh, Mr. Lyshenko right now, the journalist and former MP? Because it kind of turns out that it's not fucking fake news. We have the laptop. We really do. This is why it was very important to speak to these prostitutes, call girls, uh, you know, for me. Because there was no freaking way you would be able to get this out in the public. There is no way you would make them look, but instead you make them look like losers, just like this gentleman. Sergey right now looks stupid because it turns out it's not fake news. Somebody needs to tweet at him and tell him, hey, Sergey, remember when you said that Hunter Biden's laptop was fake news and that Joe Biden was not trying to do all that to cover up for his son? Remember how you said all of that with the quid pro Joe, that it wasn't true, that turned out to be true? How do you feel, Sergey? Use misinformation. Russia was the country interfered in American elections 2016. 
It's true, both theories have been debunked. Ukraine did have concerns about candidate Trump. He seemed rather keen on Russia. Wouldn't it be nice if we actually did get along with Russia? But there was no concerted effort to stop him being elected. And there's no evidence that Joe Biden used his influence to protect his son, or even that his son did anything wrong. But if they're not true, where do these theories actually come from? You can see why Donald Trump would want to believe them. He's never liked the idea that Russia interfered. So in other words, we have the impeachment of a president because he was uncovering treasonous acts by the previous administration. Seems really weird, doesn't it? That we actually had an impeachment based on Ukraine, based on the fact that everyone was covering their asses, and now we know. What happens to that? What happens to the money that we spent on this, knowing that all of these clowns in the laptop knew that they were colluding and still stole our money and paraded around and did this whole impeachment? Anyone want to talk about that? Anyone want to talk about how we had an impeachment of a president based on lies? Actual fat. Now proven to be true. (laughs) Lies, (laughs) right? It was all lies. It was all lies. They knew everything he said was true. And no one is talking about the fact that they impeached him based on them covering their asses and using our tax dollars to do so, and therefore depriving us of the right to have our president. But he didn't get impeached. He spent his time on this bullshit rather than on focusing on the United States. This is a problem. This is what one would call usurpation. It's pretty weird. Let's continue listening to this truth bomb in the election that he won in 2016 and dirt on a political rival well surely everyone wants that these theories aren't just peddled in the u.s слава богу нас теперь уже никто не обвиняет что мы вмешиваемся в выборы в соединенных штатах теперь украину обвиняют Mr. Putin is, I think, main beneficiary from this situation because it makes Ukraine weaker, it makes American institutions weaker, it makes White House weaker. We have some TV channels controlled by uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, who is a friend of Putin. And uh, these all TV channels translate this kind of narrative that Ukraine interfered. Is Russia kicking sand in the eyes of American politicians while simultaneously keeping Ukraine off balance? We may never know precisely where the conspiracy theories began, but it's safe to say that Russia is happy to see them spread. The idea that Ukraine interfered into American elections is being discussed by the legislators in, in Congress as truth. It's, it's very disappointing. Our country is something as a football playing between the big guys of American political battle. So this is exactly not in the interests of Ukraine. Donald Trump's phone call with Volodymyr Zelensky has placed Ukraine at the center of Washington's biggest, ugliest political drama. For a vulnerable country living with war and fearful of its neighbor to the east, it's not where most Ukrainians want to be.
I'm actually glad that call was leaked. And I'm actually glad they tried to impeach my president with that. But you need to listen to this report that was, well, they had him impeaching for that. <laughs> but hold on a second. Um, when he, in 2020, when we had the impeachment trial, right, right. So they tried to impeach him, right? And then they gave us COVID and locked us down because it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work because the laptop was already loose. It didn't work. They should have known better. Instead, they chose blood. They are penning you into a position where you will get violent. And it's not going to be the crazy leftists that crave structure and communism. It's those conservatives that are hotheads that think they know better. And you better watch out who your instigators are. Be careful who you follow. And it is. But why did it happen and what does it mean? This video will cut through the details, distractions and dramas and answer those questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What's there quid pro quo? It all started with that phone call in July last year between President Trump and Ukraine's newly elected President Zelensky. It was supposed to be a mutual pat on the back, a welcome from President Trump and some warm words. But pretty soon the president made clear there was something on his mind. After the niceties were out of the way came this. I would like you to do us a favor. It was the turning point, the moment the Democrats say when President Trump crossed the line between presidential niceties and doing something illegal by asking a foreign power for a favor. And it wasn't just any favor. He wanted him to launch an investigation into his political rival, Joe Biden. Because that's what this is all about. The age old fight between Republicans and Democrats. Trump in the red corner and Biden in the blue. See, it seems really weird that they made it all about this political race and then impeaching him when he was talking about Ukraine from 2016. See, he had his position on Ukraine already. Everybody already knew. Quid pro Joe, that wasn't something new. The elections that we underwent in 2020 were identical to those of Ukraine where they stopped counting in the middle of the night. And then suddenly... The one that the Obama administration wanted won. But, you know, Trump did something wrong by, well, you'll see what he said. Remember him? He was President Obama's right-hand man and now standing to become the Democratic candidate to go up against President Trump himself in the 2020 election. Okay, back to the call. There's a lot of talk about Biden's son. Hold on. What's Biden's son got to do with this? Well, Hunter Biden is linked to Ukraine because he had taken a well-paid job with a Ukrainian energy firm that was accused of being corrupt. There's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it, it sounds horrible to me. What's Trump talking about? Well, he claims that Joe Biden tried to get Ukraine's top prosecutor, a powerful lawyer called Viktor Shokin, sacked because he was investigating the company that his son Hunter worked for. Essentially, President Trump thought Joe Biden was being corrupt because he was using his powerful political position to help his son. All right, so let's just stop for a second with what we know already and what we've talked about in the past year. 
Uh, this isn't far-fetched. This is fact. And the reason that he said that was because real Ukrainians were like, there's corruption in our state. We need help. But see, here's where they went pear-shaped. The media, Pravda, thought that they had full control over the people of the United States in this world. And that by just by saying it, they would believe it. Because, you know, there are people that still listen to mouthpieces and believe everything they're told. Everything. Now listen to what she has to say. You know, it's not like he used his power and met with them and his son smuggled people from the south of the border. Not like they had joy rides and fleeced nations across this planet while coordinating with the WEF, of course. Not that Donald Trump had any evidence of that, by the way. In fact, the evidence points in the opposite direction. Lots. Somebody should tweet out to this chick and say, hey, remember when you said that there was no evidence that Hunter Biden was fleecing and working with the Ukrainians? Remember when you said that? Can you do you have a comment, ma'am, on how? Oh, look, the laptop says something completely different. Oh, look, these were conversations President Trump had way before Biden decided to throw his hat in the race. And like I had told you during the Munich conference in 2019, the deal was made. If Zelensky is selected, we will set up President Trump and we have our own person there to keep on track with the plan that has been derailed for the past four years with this bumbling idiot of an American who thinks that he can destroy a hundred year plan. How dare Trump try it? And this is why he didn't announce his run until after Zelensky was placed. Of countries, even the UK, were calling for the lawyer Shokin to be sacked precisely because he refused to investigate corruption. So President Trump's allegations don't seem to stack up. But the truth, say the Democrats, is that President Trump was asking, in not so subtle terms, for President Zelensky to dig for dirt on Joe Biden, dirt that would harm him if it came to light ahead of the 2020 election. Actually, no. Zelensky was selected to make sure that none of that dirt came out. Ah, to think that this chick goes home every day and says, I did a great job lying to the people. But unlucky for President Trump, asking a foreign leader to interfere in U.S. politics, in this case, to potentially affect the outcome of an election, is a no-go. Can't do it. The other problem for Donald Trump is that lots of people were listening in on that call, as is procedure when the president talks to other world leaders. They heard his attempts to persuade President Zelensky. As, and he didn't know that, you think? You think that President Trump thought that the phone call he was having with Zelensky was completely with nobody else on it? Let me guess. He thought that no one would be on the call except for the interpreters, right? No one would be on the call because it's not even like Zelensky needs an interpreter. You know, he's a he's an artist. He's an asset. So, again, he knew that they were listening, right? He knew. And were alarmed. One unnamed aide who was told about the call was so shocked, he blew the whistle. Alleging that not only had President Trump abused the power of his office for his own political gain, but that the transcript of the call was then squirreled away on a secret server in the White House with strict access for just the select few. What the Democrats have since called... The cover-up. But it didn't end there. Oh no, the next bombshell was about to drop. 
A month before the July call with Zelensky, it emerged that President Trump had ordered nearly $400 million worth of military aid to Ukraine to be put on hold. He says because he wasn't convinced that Ukraine was doing enough to fight corruption within the country. In fact, he says everything he's ever done with Ukraine, this whole saga has all been about fighting corruption. I'm only interested in corruption. Everything to me is about corruption. We're investigating corruption. Yet how many times did he actually use the word corruption? Could you imagine? Let me tell you what would have happened. If he had delivered those weapons to um, the Ukrainians, they would have started the war themselves. You see, they would have been fighting amongst themselves, whatever paid actors were there, with the weapons that they would have received. And then we would have been at war with Russia and it would have put Trump in a very compromising position. Therefore, he chose his battles wisely. And this was one of the best moves ever. Best moves ever. On that phone call with President Zelensky back in July. Yep, you guessed it. Not once, not a single time. The Democrats say instead that President Trump held back the money as a bargaining tool to try and force Ukraine to do what he wanted. They called it the quid pro quo, which is an old Latin term meaning this for that. In other words, you investigate Joe Biden for me and I'll give you $400 million worth of military aid. Oh, no, no, says President Trump. He insists the call was perfect. The call was perfect. Perfect, perfect. The problem is, after the whistleblower came forward, the Democrats decided to launch an investigation. Then a ton of current and former White House aides and military officials came out of the woodwork. Lots of witnesses came and went and gave evidence. And between them, they made clear it wasn't just one isolated phone call. The call was, in fact, just one part of a months-long scheme to put pressure on Ukraine to do President Trump's bidding. I found the July 25th phone call unusual because, in contrast to other presidential calls I had observed... It involved discussion of what appeared to be a domestic political matter. Was there a quid pro quo? The answer is yes. Have you ever seen another example of foreign aid conditioned on the personal or political interests of the president of the United States? No, Mr. Goldman, I've not. One man who didn't testify, but who almost everyone said was at the center of this scandal, was one Rudy Giuliani. The former mayor of New York, who was praised for his strong leadership in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. He then went on to become the president's personal lawyer. As the pieces of the Ukraine puzzle came together, it turns out Giuliani had even gone on TV months before this whole scandal erupted and openly bragged about visiting Ukraine to force them to open an investigation into what he called the corrupt Bidens. It's a case that is crying out to be investigated. If it doesn't get investigated, we just don't have equal justice in this country. It wasn't hard for the Democrats to gather the evidence. All the witnesses who'd appeared backed up what the whistleblower had said. And President Trump himself helpfully appeared on the White House lawn and happily repeated in public what he'd been accused of doing in private. Go figure. President Zelensky, if it were me, I would recommend that they start an investigation into the Bidens. Because nobody has any doubt that they weren't crooked. That was a crooked deal, 100%. So it was no surprise the Democrats were quick to bring charges, so-called articles of impeachment, against President Trump. 
They alleged that first he abused the power of his office by pressuring Ukraine to meddle in the 2020 election by launching an investigation into his political rival, Joe Biden. And second, that he obstructed Congress in its impeachment investigations by refusing to hand over any documents and blocking key witnesses from giving evidence. With the Democrats in charge of the House of Representatives, it was a no-brainer that they would vote in favour of the impeachment charges, and they did just that. On the night of December 19th, in that building there behind me, Donald Trump became just the third president in US history to be impeached. As we know, Donald Trump likes accolades and headlines, but coming third on the podium for this one was a dubious honour for sure. So now you know why President Trump got himself impeached. But what happens next? Will he stop being president? Will he get slung out of the Oval Office? Will anything actually happen to him at all? Well, most likely, no. And if you think that's unfair, well, so too do the Democrats. But there's not much they can do about it because the president's fate now lies in the hands of the Senate. And two thirds of senators over there will need to vote in favour for President Trump to be removed from office. But guess what? Because the Senate is majority controlled by Republicans, there is practically no chance on earth that they will vote to sling their president out. It's sure to get ugly, with Trump's lawyers already attacking the trial as rigged and flimsy, calling for the charges against the president to be dropped immediately. Really, the only route to removing him from office now is that the White House could be forced to release more juicy documents and emails and further witnesses could be called to testify in the trial. And if that happens, that may prove very damaging for Donald Trump and very difficult for Republican senators to ignore. You know, if he wasn't impeached, you wouldn't know about the Hunter Biden laptop. You wouldn't. You would know none of that. And now it comes down to what's going on. NATO's freaking out. Shit's happening everywhere. And things are about to get really hot and busy. How? Well, there are a lot of tensions right now between NATO and Turkey. Here's what their news are saying, because our news aren't really talking about it. They're thinking of kicking Turkey out of NATO. Now, that would be fantabulous, almost as if it's planned. Why? Well, who's the largest army? The U.S. Who's the second largest army? Turkey. What weapons did Turkey buy that everyone was like, no, no, and Trump was like, oh, why are you doing this, Turkey? Bad Turkey. Do you remember the S-400s? All right. They bought that shit from Russia. Oh, and what else do they do? Right. They take down F-16s. That. Uh-huh. Videos ad-free by signing up to the Curiosity Stream Nebula Bundle deal, which is linked in the description. Despite being a NATO member since 1952, Turkey has never quite fit in. After all, Turkey's accession into NATO in the early 50s was more of a marriage of convenience than a natural alliance. And today, Erdogan is involved in multiple tiffs with a number of other NATO members, most recently concerning Swedish and Finnish accession into the organization. So in this video, we're going to be taking a look at why Turkey even joined NATO in the first place. Some of the quarrels that Turkey currently has with NATO and other NATO members, and whether NATO could actually end up kicking Turkey out of the alliance. 
So to understand why Turkey joined NATO in the first place, we need to do a bit of history. Turkey and its predecessor in the form of the Ottoman Empire have never really got along well with the Russians. Before Turkey's accession into NATO, the Ottoman and Russian Empire had fought an impressive 10 wars over a 300-year period, with the first Russo-Turkish War beginning in 1568 and the last, known as the 10th Russo-Turkish War, ending in 1878. Much of this fighting was over the Caucasus and the Crimean Peninsula, and most of the wars were won decisively by the Russians, which is why, after World War I, the Soviets ended up in control of both the Caucasus and Crimea, and why so many Turks have a historical antipathy towards Russia. In 1913, the Ottomans were soundly beaten in the First Balkan War, where the Balkan League, made up of Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro, pushed the Ottomans all the way back to Istanbul, which was then known as Constantinople. And their defeat in that war earned the Ottomans the nickname of the sick man in Europe, and things only got worse in World War I, when they made the mistake of siding with the Central Powers. True to historical form, the Ottomans ended the war with an attack against the Russians via the Black Sea, but were swiftly defeated by the Russians in the Caucasus. Then, under the terms of the 1918 armistice, Constantinople was occupied by Allied troops, the Ottoman Empire was broken up, and the Sultanate was abolished. And then another treaty, signed in 1920, forced the Ottomans to cede basically all territory not occupied by ethnic Turks, and then yet more, including the creation of two new autonomous zones, the Kurdish region in the east and Smyrna in the west. Both regions even had their own regional parliaments and were due to hold plebiscites on Kurdish independence and accession into Greece respectively in 1923. That treaty also gave the Allies control over the Ottomans' national finances and imposed massive restrictions on the Ottomans' military capabilities. Somewhat unsurprisingly then, the Turks didn't much like this, and the treaty's signatories were stripped of their citizenship by the Grand National Assembly, led by General Mustafa Kemal Asaturk. Asaturk then led the Turks to victory in the Greco-Turkish War of 1922, which concluded in 1923 with the Treaty of Lausanne. From Turkey's point of view, Lausanne was a slight improvement because it gave Turkey complete control over Anatolia and slightly extended Turkey's border with Greece. Nonetheless, though, this meant that within the early 20th century, the Ottoman Empire had been reduced from a huge empire spanning large parts of Europe, Asia, and North Africa to what was an essentially small, relatively impoverished state with a below-average European military. Economic growth in the 20s and 30s was irregular, and by the time the Second World War rolled round, Turkey's military was in pretty poor shape, with them preoccupied by Kurdish rebellions in the West. Ultimately, this meant that Turkey had to play it safe and decided to remain neutral for most of the war. They did nearly ally with Germany after the Axis powers took control of Greece, signing the 1941 German-Turkish Treaty of Friendship. But they wisely stayed neutral until February 1945, when, with the Soviets approaching Berlin and a German defeat looking inevitable, Turkey declared war on Germany and Japan. 
This smart, if cynical move, earned Turkey some goodwill with the big players within the Allies, like the US and UK, who went on to form NATO. Anyway, this is the context in which Turkey applied to join NATO. In the early 50s, the Cold War was heating up and Turkey was enjoying a moment of relatively warm relations with the rest of Europe, and Turkey's historic enemy in the form of the Soviet Union had basically surrounded them. Soviet troops were stationed in the Balkans and the Caucasus, while Soviet diplomats were supporting Kurdish rebels who were gaining influence in Syria and Iraq. Turkey apparently decided that neutrality was therefore not an option, and to properly deter the Soviets, it needed to join NATO which happened in 1952. NATO accepted Turkey within the organization because Turkey's strategic geography gave the alliance an advantage over Russia. But despite this, Turkey has never really fit in with the other NATO members. After all, it has an ongoing border dispute with Greece, which escalated in the 2000s with the discovery of oil reserves in the Mediterranean and nearly spilled out into a full-on war in the summer of 2020 before Greece signed a pointed defense pact with France. It's not just that either. Since joining NATO, Turkey has experienced three military coups, and Erdogan has more recently nudged Turkey away from being a secular democracy towards a more presidential system with an Islamic tinge. Things got particularly heated after the failed coup in 2016, which Erdogan blamed on Islamic scholar Fethullah Gulen. And that's difficult because Gulen currently lives in Pennsylvania, but the US has so far refused Erdogan's extradition demands. And this is all pretty hard to square with NATO's stated political aims of promoting democratic values, as well as not really matching its membership action plans which often require substantial democratic political reforms from candidate countries, something which Turkey themselves may not even be living up to. Turkey also has different geopolitical priorities to the rest of NATO. Much of NATO, especially its eastern flank, has a myopic focus on Russia. But Turkey's geopolitical priority is usually the Middle East, which other NATO members just don't really care about. In fact, Erdogan was even openly bitter about the fact that NATO sent extra troops to Lithuania in an attempt to deter Russian aggression in 2017, while they simultaneously refused to send troops to help Turkey when it decided to go into Syria in 2016, nominally to defeat the terrorist threat posed by ISIS. Turkey was also sanctioned by the US after they bought Russian air defense systems. And Erdogan's weird frenemy bromance thing with Putin has provoked suspicion from some NATO leaders. More recently, Turkey has also taken a softer line on Russia than its NATO allies. Turkey originally positioned itself as a mediator between Ukraine and Russia, and towed Moscow's line in refusing to describe the invasion as a war in the first few days of the conflict. And that's kind of continued, because to this day, Turkey is the only NATO member that hasn't sanctioned Russia. And Erdogan hit the headlines yet again last week for suggesting that Turkey would veto Swedish and Finnish accession into NATO, apparently because of their support for the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Now, we should say that while there are some Kurdish diasporas within Sweden and Finland, there's little evidence to support Erdogan's claim that either the Swedish or Finnish government actively supports the PKK or any other Kurdish militant group. 
And it's entirely possible that Erdogan's just bringing this up in order to improve his poll numbers and hopefully squeeze some concessions out of NATO. Nonetheless, Turkey's divergence on this point from the rest of NATO is a symptom of the underlying fact that Turkey was never really a natural NATO member. And some commentators have even suggested kicking Turkey out of the alliance altogether in order to make space for the more natural Nordic candidates. So on to the last part of this video. Could Turkey actually be expelled from NATO? Well, the short answer is no, even if Erdogan did end up blocking Nordic accession. For starters, there's no legal mechanism for actually kicking someone out of NATO, and doing so would introduce an unnecessary uncertainty into the world's most successful military alliance. But more importantly, Turkey is just far too important to NATO. Turkey's control over the Turkish Straits helps NATO contain Russia. And Turkey's military, recently made famous by the success of their drone strikes in Ukraine, is one of the most powerful militaries within the alliance. So that's ultimately why NATO have turned a blind eye to Turkey's various hiccups in the past. And Turkey has had some serious hiccups. So while other member states might become increasingly hostile to Turkey, it seems there's not a whole lot they can actually do to get rid of their troublesome member, an issue which the EU knows all too well. Speaking of the EU, if you want to dive deeper into the troubles of the union. So in other words, uh, we're about to see the first time that someone's going to be kicking a nation out of NATO. That's a really big deal. And here's why it's... <laughs> Not here's why, here's evidence that it's going to happen. They tell you before they do it, you know it's coming. And here you go, hearing them say it so openly. Tensions between NATO and Turkey escalate. And this is why they're going to have to take him out. Because things like this are being leaked out into the media from Turkey. And, you know, it's a big deal when Turkish politicians... Tell the truth. Uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union, this for regional operations. In My gosh, of, this is killing me. Did you guys get to hear the lady? I'm sorry. I just popped over to Rumble. Were you guys able to see the lady? And, and did you hear her, what she said? No? Okay. Well, let me start this one over. I apologize. This is, I'm so sorry. It's a, it's, it's a system. My daughter just set it up for me today. Um, and I'm trying to get used to it because uh, she says that my podcasts are bad. It's like really bad since I'm, uh, you know, uh, doing the volume wrong. So I apologize. So the first news were out of Australia where um, uh, it was a 30 second clip where they said that Finland and Sweden are sending their own delegates down to Turkey who said that they are not going to allow them to join. Here is a Turkish politician, what he has to say. NATO. Uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union, uh, started expanding towards the east. And their role in Yugoslavia, it was terrible. They bombed and they split Yugoslavia into, into pieces. So NATO has always been an uh, imperial aggression organization. And now in Ukraine, uh, they planned this for many years. So NATO is one of the designers of this war. They are not defending Ukraine. Well, Injilik base is a historically important base uh, which is used by United States for regional operations. In many, in many operations in Iraq, 
uh, in Syria, Injilic base was Jews. Uh, the base is, uh, you know, uh, theoretically a Turkish base, but the United States is using. We don't want any foreign uh, base in our country. They should be kicked out. And in addition, there is a problem with Injilic base because there, there is uh, nuclear weapons there. For many years, starting from the 60s, early 60s, uh, this is, uh, w there's no reason for this. And it is uh, doing some harm to, to uh, the security of Turkish people because nuclear weapons are, if there's a conflict, they, uh, they, are, they are targets. So we want that uh, base to be cl closed immediately. So there's China just dropping some real truth. Um, <laughs> so weird. But then here comes the weirder part. So that 30 second clip that I said that was saying that they were about to kicked out, kicked out, that Turkey's going to get kicked out was, oh, the, the climate's escalating between NATO and Turkey because they're refusing. But Sweden and Norway said they're going to talk to them. They're going to send delegations. This is where they hotbox them. This is where they take out Erdogan. And this is where the real firepower comes in. And you can see it on the wall. Huh? Look. Remember, we did this whole thing where I taught you guys in many episodes of how Cyprus was taken over. Half of it was taken over with Turkey. And it's been like that for over 40 somewhat years, 48, almost 50 years now. And no one says anything that the land was occupied. Remember? Well, look at it coming into fruition now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to France 24's interview here in Nicosia, the last divided capital of Europe. There are many hot topics here, like the tension with Turkey, relations with Russia, but also immigration. Cypriot uh, President Nikos Anastasiadis agreed to answer to our questions. Mr. Anastasiadis, Mr. President, uh, hello. Cyprus has been divided since 1974. And today, after 48 years of negotiation for a possible uh, reunification of the islands, we it seems that we are in a turning point. Everything is in a limbo, Mr. President. Are we getting ahead a definitive division of the island. Above all, I would like to thank you for the opportunity to answer crucial questions that apart from the Republic of Cyprus, the people of Cyprus, Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots, of course, are of general concern, based also on the new facts of Russia's investigations in Ukraine, which is taking place using the exact same arguments that Turkey used to invade Cyprus. I am given the opportunity to cite some similar actions of countries which seek, through revisionism, to overturn either geographical or historical data records. Firstly, I want to say that indeed a significant period of time may have passed, and the lapse of time without progress always constitutes a risk. I would like to point out, however, that we, as the Greek Cypriot side, have never ceased fight for a solution with significant concessions. Cyprus was united, its residents lived together in mixed villages and towns. The Turkish invasion forced the Turkish Cypriots to move to the north and the Greek Cypriots to the south. One third of the populations are refugees within their own homeland, that is, the Greek Cypriots who have abandoned their properties. Since then, we have made significant efforts 
made progress on important chapters that we have always run into an intransigent stance on the part of Turkey, which insists that it should be a guarantor of the Republic of Cyprus or of the Turkish Cypriots, while at the same time, through proposals submitted by the Turkish Cypriots as dictated by Turkey, for every decision of the federal government as it would evolve, as we have agreed for the Republic of Cyprus to be transformed, Turkey demands on having a positive vote. This suggests that the minority will govern the majority. In other words, it transforms the new state of affairs into essentially a protectorate of Ankara. I am saying this because since 1974, they have, under Ankara's instructions, altered the demographic character of the Turkish Cypriot community, with thousands of Turkish nationals having settled in the northern part. There are 35,000 Turkish soldiers of the Turkish army. They are financially controlled entirely by Turkey, politically controlled entirely by Turkey, so the Turkish Cypriots would only be an accessory, as they already are, unfortunately, today. There are Turkish Cypriots who react to the shift of a community that believed in the secular character of the states towards Islamization. This disturbs many Cypriots, the vast majority of Turkish Cypriots, who have a completely different mentality and culture. And let me note one more thing. Turkey's behavior, as recorded, the blue homeland, is not our finding. It is a revisionism of Turkey that does not only affect Cyprus, it challenges Greece's sovereignty over the Aegean Sea. It intervenes in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq. In other words, there is an attitude of arrogance by Turkey which believes that all problems should be resolved according to its own will. Ooh! So can you see how they're going to now make rules like they can expel people from their group? This is how they're going to keep people hungry. Because if you read the document that we're that all of us have been sending off uh, to Tedros, our AGs, and our congressperson, uh, You'll notice that in the treaty it says that those that won't implement any policies they say or do what they want or what they demand, then they'll be sanctioned. See, here is how Greece plays its role. You let Turkey in and they've taken over us. You need us to fight off the other end, which is the Middle East. The Middle East will not attack Greece. Greece has good relations. Greece created agreements with General Haftar, if you remember, a couple of years ago. Greece made a, a, agreements with Assad. They denounced the UN representative of Libya. These are all things that are going to come into play. And if you remember, President Trump stalked the shit out of Greece with a bunch of Apaches and whatnot in 2019. This was already out there. You had everything you needed to see how this movie plays out. The only problem is, is that we don't know what to look for. Well, here I'm showing you in real life just how presidential assassinations are coordinated. If I understood correctly, you accused Turkey uh, of bad faith. What would be for you, Mr. President, uh, the most realistic solution? The, the bizonal, bicommunal federation, as determined by numerous United Nations resolutions and Security Council resolutions. Bear in mind that during all these years we have agreed on the legislative power, the judiciary, the composition of the executive power, and what remained unresolved 
where the territorial issue, the property issue, the way of governance, due to their claims, the worst being their claim that Cyprus remains under Turkey's guarantee regime. Imagine the Russians insisting on being the guarantors of Ukraine. It's exactly the same. Turkey also wants to share the uh, hydrocarbons found maybe in large quantities, in the Cypriot seabed. Um, and you started drilling back uh, in the couple of days with also the French company Total. Mr. President, are you afraid of a Turkish reaction? I would like to say that despite Turkey's questioning of the exclusive economic zone of the Republic of Cyprus, Turkey's behavior to overlook the Republic of Cyprus, its questioning of 40% of the exclusive economic zone, which affects not only Greek Cypriots, but also our Turkish Cypriot compatriots, we have proposed to Turkey either to appeal to the International Court of Justice in The Hague or through arbitration based on the international law of the sea to find the dividing line between the two countries' exclusive economic zones. And there will be no problem. I hope that they will not attempt to do anything that will cause conflagration and risk peace in the region. You mean to share it with Turkey? If we follow international law, why not? There is no doubt that we are ready. On the basis of the rules that were in force when determining the exclusive economic zone with Egypt, with Israel, with Lebanon, with all neighboring countries. Let's move to another subject. Uh, uh, since the beginning of the war uh, in Ukraine, many are looking to uh, Cyprus. Uh, of course, your government uh, supports the Ukrainian people and also uh, the decision of the EU for an embargo in Russia. But you have one of the largest community of Russian here uh, in Cyprus. Of course, they're not only uh, oligarchs, but your government is accused to uh, give golden visas to many Russian oligarchs. Mr. President, what do you answer to that? Let me clarify something. I have to say, first and foremost, that Cyprus is an attractive place for pensioners or people who choose it either as a business hub due to the incentives it offers or due to geographical location or due to its climate. Let me mention that there is an English community that exceeds 60,000 UK citizens as well as thousands of others from third countries. It is a fact that there is also a large community of Russians that does not exist 20,000 citizens who work, etc. But let me talk about the issue of oligarchs. The EU has recently imposed a list of 1,300 oligarchs or people involved in the war against Ukraine. Of the 1,300, only eight hold a Cypriot passport, and instructions were given for that to be revoked in compliance with the common EU line. Mr. President, for the Russian, what are you going to do with their assets? Are you going to sell them like England did? We have a constitution which, for reasons also of protecting the Turkish Cypriots or the Greek Cypriots from arbitrariness, as let's not forget, it was a bicommunal one, therefore constitutionally, as in other constitutions, there is a problem. We have already discussed it, even during yesterday's teleconference with Charles Michel and other partners, but it's not as easy as some may think. Mr. President, time is running for the immigration issue. Uh, Cyprus is also a gateway to European uh, Union, even if uh, this, the island doesn't belong to Schengen area. Are you going to take measures for a better reception uh, facilities? Unfortunately, there is instrumentalization. 
as the Belarusians did, the Turks are doing the same right now. The percentage of asylum seekers in Cyprus currently stands at 5% of the population, when in the other frontline countries it is no more than 1%. And this is something observed every day. There is an instrumentalization of migrants that alters the demographic character of the population and causes serious problems in terms of reception as well. We are doing everything humanly possible. We receive aid by the EU. What is required is taking measures against instrumentalization. Mr. President Nikos Anastasiadis, thank you and thank you for watching this interview on France uh, 24. Please I stay hope tuned. you guys understood what he was saying. Cyprus is going to be play a key role in what's going to happen with Turkey. A key role because they have the right to play a key role there. Now, as we finalize this and we see where Turkey is coming into play and how Ukraine is coming into the forefront, we must remember Hunter Biden's laptop is not a myth. And then I also want to know where the heck is Cash Patel? So the FBI knew in September nice of 2016, and yet how many FISA warrants did they get to spy on the Trump campaign? I've spoken with Carter Page a number of times. He was spied on for a year by the FBI. No charges were ever brought down. What is the culpability for that? Okay. You know, he's got some fantastic icons behind him, right? One of them has got to be really old if I recognize it. So my thing is like, where is he? Yeah, four FISA warrants starting at the end of September 2016. And I couple the uh, the, the the issue is, is sort of metastasized by the Clinton campaign. And Robbie Mook testified to this in court, the former Clinton campaign manager, that Hillary Clinton herself knew it, authorized it, and they leaked that false information to the media to try to gin up attention against Donald Trump. As I've said before, all roads lead to Andy McCabe, the deputy director, and the lovebirds in their office concocting an insurance plan in August of 2015. And I think John Durham knows what that insurance plan is. That's former DOD chief of staff. And I just wanted to say, I was hopping over to the text, if anyone, it's not any of um, Mayor Giuliani's places. So... This um, icon room I've never seen. So it's nowhere I've been for sure. That's why I'm asking. It's got some fantastic old iconography. So it's interesting. Of Cash Patel last week speaking with Maria on what the FBI knew about the Russiagate hoax and when. A federal jury in Virginia is now deciding the fate of former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, who is charged with lying to the FBI. Special counsel John Durham says Sussman met with the FBI general counsel James Baker, claiming he had information on a covert communication channel between the Trump Organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. That alleged info has since been completely debunked. Sussman uh, claimed uh, he was not representing any specific client, but Durham's team alleges that he billed Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign for that FBI meeting. All right, joining me now is California Congressman Daryl Issa. He's a member of both the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, thanks for joining me. I got to tell you what, I look uh, at what information has come out now about how the Hillary Clinton campaign completely orchestrated this hoax, fed it to the FBI, but then the FBI for three years with the media runs with this. Stop, stop. They did it for Hillary. Hillary Clinton gave no such orders. She was not in any position of any power except for that she was running. So why are they constantly talking about Hillary? 
Yes, it was done for her. Yes, it was her lawyer. But that lawyer was commingling accounts with Obama for America, Hillary for America, the DNC, the DCC. And it was Robert Bauer, former chief, former counsel of the White House under the Obama administration that was kicking this shit off. So why do they keep bringing up Hillary Clinton? Jeez. In page 44, can you see it? Thing is, we got to stay focused. We got to stay on task. Because globally, shit's about to really hit the fan. And all we can do is sit and pray that there won't be many casualties. And starting tomorrow, with everyone being able to constitutionally carry concealed weapons, keep your head on straight. God bless everyone.